Hi, my name is uh, Tom Matthews, retired colonel, United States Army. Uh, most of my military career, uh, 28 years, was spent flying helicopters. On uh, the 3rd of October, 1993, into the 4th, I was involved with the book that is now called Black Hawk Down that recounts our military operations in Mogadishu, Somalia. I was the air mission commander. What that meant was that uh, I was responsible for the conduct of the helicopter operations. My, uh, my position at that time also was commander of 1st Battalion, 160th Special Operations Aviation. This is Lee Van Arsdale. I retired from the Army as a colonel in the Special Forces. In Somalia, I started the day on the 3rd of October as the jock chief. I ended up uh, being the senior ranking man at the Super 6-1 crash site. My name's Matt Eversman. I'm a master sergeant in the Army. Uh, on October 3rd, I was a staff sergeant and the chalk leader of Chalk 4 from Bravo Company, 3rd Ranger Battalion. My name's Danny McKnight, and I'm a retired Army colonel. Uh, 28 plus years and all 28 plus was spent as an infantryman and uh, at the time in Mogadishu on the 3rd and 4th of October I was the commander of 3rd Ranger Battalion and on that day in Mogadishu I was in charge of the ground convoy the vehicular piece of the operation. Comment I would make, particularly at the beginning of this movie uh, as the screen is scrolling is the fact that it uh, leads you into what was going on in Somalia prior to our arrival, Task Force Ranger, which arrived about the 25th of August, 1993. I'd just add that there are many Somalias out there. It started as a uh, humanitarian mission to stop dying from uh, starvation. It transitioned to United Nations mission uh, with peacekeeping uh, intent in mind, went to peacemaking and authority to use force. And in uh, June, as it's depicted up there, of 93, 24 Pakistani soldiers were killed and uh, their bodies pretty well brutally handled. The United Nations passed additional resolutions to get those involved. That was interpreted specifically to be Farah Adid, and our mission was to capture him alive uh, because of uh, what was done to the UN peacekeepers. It was a single focus mission that was separate and distinct from the UN missions. Task Force Ranger had one job and one job only, apprehension of Muhammad Farideed. So as time went on and uh, the next UN resolution was passed, Task Force Ranger went in there to capture that man, as Lee just said, focused on nothing to do with the United Nations other than to try to bring him to justice for that mandate. And there was, in fact, a bounty on his head, which is an interesting uh, twist to what our military does not normally do, and that's chase after people with money on their head. This was the first scene that I saw shot on location in Morocco when I went over last summer. And though I never in real life witnessed... Uh, uh, looting and pillaging at a grain distribution facility. I remember coming up on the uh, on the set, and uh, the the hair on the back of my neck stood up, uh, just because it was so authentic. Seeing all the the character actors and all these Somalis and the the buildings, and it just was tremendously authentic. I thought uh, to what I remembered from Somalia, even though I'd never witnessed the actual event. 
People have asked us a lot of questions, I think, related to the movie. There's a number of things that uh, we point out as we go along. First of all, in this scene right here, for instance, uh, those crew-serve weapons that are mounted on the vehicles, they existed in Somalia, but I never saw any during the two months we were there. They were there before we got there, they're there after we left, and they're there today, as the conditions there are uh, largely the same as they were. Clan rivalry and fighting and uh, use of force. But uh, we didn't see any crew-serve weapons uh, the entire time I was there. That, under the rules of engagement, was allowed a crew-serve weapon to be fired on immediately. And they knew that, and they did not have those on the street. To include uh, the entire time of 3rd and 4th October, we, we simply never saw any. But for the sake of making in the movie, it, it is a true, uh, true item that is and was there, but we certainly didn't see it while we were there. But it added to the making of the movie. It certainly gave you uh, a, another feeling of the lawlessness that, that persisted on the street, and that's what it was about. It was about uh, brokering power and, and leveraging power. The one thing you can see at this point in the movie very clearly, and is very accurate, is everybody uh, was allowed to have a weapon. Uh, having a weapon over there was not uh, abnormal, it was more normal. Whether it be an AK-47, whether it be an RPG-7, whatever uh, weapon of choice that you could get your hands on, it didn't matter whether you were male or female, whether you were 12 years old or 20 years old or 30, uh, weapons were the common uh, thing that you would see people walking around with. You talking during the conduct of the fight, right, Danny? Well, during the conduct of the fight especially, but even on a normal day, if we, when we would drive out on missions, we would see people with weapons in many places, but uh, especially when you had uh, a battle like we had on 3rd and 4th, everybody had a weapon for sure. It's a lot like South Asia or, or Israel. It's, uh, it's the norm to see everyone walking around armed. You know, I tell everybody uh, when I talk about our mission in Somalia that we really had two very simple courses of action. One was to capture a deed in a hard site in his house, or we'd capture him in a convoy uh, coming to and from someplace. And, uh, you know, that seems not entirely accurate. Uh, we did do that. We chased people in their vehicles and also into houses. Yeah, the auto capture, this is... Uh this is an important scene. Uh, our plan was, uh, as I said, a single focus mission to apprehend ID. Uh, but we knew going in how difficult that would be. It's almost impossible to, to get one individual out of his own backyard, especially a busy metropolitan area when he doesn't want to be found and you have very little intel on the ground. So uh, phase two of the operation was to roll up his infrastructure to include his top tier of lieutenants, of which Osman Otto was one. And that was a textbook operation to go in, as Matt said, chasing a vehicle by helicopter, stopping it, uh, putting the habeas gravis on Mr. Otto and a couple of bodyguards and bringing them back to the base. The thing I recall about that day if, uh, quite well is that uh, that initially was going to be a mission that was uh, in a building because he was uh, in his house that day when the mission started. Uh, because I was ready to go out with the uh, vehicles as part of that mission and uh, to show how quick things could change, uh, he departed the house and our ability to observe told us that I never left the compound that day and the well-trained uh, aircraft uh, capabilities we had, we were able to change immediately to a, a mission of chasing uh, three vehicles 
and uh, capturing Osmanato very successfully, but I do believe that it was a little more difficult than what was shown in the movie also. <laughs> well, the, the, I like the scene in the movie. Our, our two snipers come out, and they're excruciatingly polite as they tap on the window. In reality, uh, you're looking at uh, a lot of armed people who don't want to go where you want them to go, so you're not quite that polite. I believe there was some uh, running uh, involved with that, actually capturing Osmanato. Yeah, they actually ran out of their vehicle into a building, just, you know, the building where the car stopped. And so we, we went and uh, policed them up out of that building. Imagine the, the occupants of that building. What the heck is going on here? But, uh, yeah, he didn't want to go where we wanted him to. Yeah, the vehicle, in fact, was uh, identified, tracked, and stopped by uh, from the air with bullets that immobilized the uh, the engine. He went and fled at that point, obviously, still trying to get away into a building. It became a building takedown, and the extraction was conducted off of the roof of the building, and all the assaulters and Otto were brought back to the airfield. Sophisticated. Yeah, he's a good catch. It takes some time, but I need to feel the loss. I'm not sure time. This is uh, General Garrison on the screen. It's kind of interesting. And, uh, and uh, another fellow there that uh, is uh, supposed to be Lee, quite frankly, and uh, pay, played by Steve Ford. Uh, General Garrison is a very unique guy, uh, very well respected. Uh, in this movie, he does a lot of things uh, much more personally and hands-on than, in fact, was reality. Uh, he let his uh, soldiers, his commanders, operate and do their mission. and. Uh, and he observed and only interjected by exception normally. But uh, for the making of the movie, with a, a name, face, and character like Sam Shepard, uh, there's a lot more of hands-on personal action conducted by Sam Shepard than maybe was the truth. These are real aircraft from the 160th Special Operations uh, Aviation Regiment. Night Stalkers and a platoon of Rangers. And what you see in flying on virtually all the film uh, throughout the whole film is real footage of flown by real air crews, uh, either with Rangers in there doing fast roping or with uh, actors. You know, I thought that the aerial photography uh, of the Blackhawks flying up and down the coast, particularly at this point in the movie, was really phenomenal. Uh, and as I look back on some of the pictures that I had uh, from Mogadishu, looking down onto the ocean off the coastline, uh, it really kind of remo- this. I thought this scene was pretty uh, accurate on some of the, the flights we had taken up and down the coastline. You know, Tom is always quick to point out that you never had a single aircraft flying anywhere. Um, we didn't have enough hawks over there to, to do it accurately, but uh, I agree with you, Matt. The, you see the the coastline and the water and the overhead shots of the helos, which is, we almost never saw that when you're sitting there with your legs dangling out of one. It, it really gives you goosebumps to see those uh, infill scenes. This scene, uh, I have to tell everybody that we went over as an organic rifle company as part of this task force, we being Bravo Company Ranger, and uh, that we did have some of our, our our ranger buddies that came into country later on, uh, late September. It really wasn't this uh, new guy Vietnam type tour rotation that's shown in the film. Uh, when Todd Blackburn in this scene shows up, uh, the company clerk would have known him, you know, probably six or eight months already. I mean, when you're talking about 120 men in the element. Uh, there aren't any 
any new guys that we don't know. And, and in that part, the movie's a little inaccurate, uh, I suppose. Uh, we, you know, we knew everybody uh, that was on the team uh, from the beginning. Yeah, and when people showed up, they to take someone's place or whatever reason they would show up in country, it wasn't quite as formal as sitting at a uh, computer and saying, typing in his name and, and age and all of that stuff is shown there because the conditions were a little more austere, as I recall, uh, than having the ability to sit in an office uh, with a little fan going or something of that nature. Uh, and as pointed out by uh, uh, Sergeant Eversman, the uh, soldiers already knew each other. It was just a matter of you're coming in to take someone's place and you carry on with the same mission, and you were already trained and ready to do that, uh, and they fell in place, whether it be in a squad, a platoon, or wherever. Yeah, that, that's a good point, Danny, about the austere conditions. The, the movie did a, an amazing job of replicating the hangar after we had cleaned it up and moved in, but I don't think anything could truly replicate just how awful that place was. Yeah, the first shots uh, a minute ago, when you see it says Mogadishu Air, Airport there, uh, I don't remember it looking quite that clean at any time, uh, even after we had been there for quite a while. And uh, the airfield look, uh, looked a lot different from our, our perspective. I agree with you, Lee. Commenting on, uh, on the familiarity, I think it's important to realize that uh, We'd rehearsed uh, this mission, this profile, for several weeks even prior to deploying. The units that are in the special operations community in this particular uh, uh, set of units works and trains together all the time. If you spend any amount of time in that community, as most people do uh, for extended periods, you make the rounds, you know pretty much everybody, and you know each other's procedures and tactics and techniques. and. Uh, you see the same people all the time because it's the same kind of people in these units, and uh, you invariably uh, do multiple training events with them. This scene uh, depicts the, the friction and lays the groundwork for the, the uh, intra-unit strife between Delta and the Rangers, which I, I think was uh, over-dramatized for purpose of the movie. Um, there's no denying that uh, there was some friction between uh, the Delta Squadron and a couple of people in the Ranger Company, but by and large it was the norm to see uh, two or three Ranger privates sitting on the bunk of one of the Delta NCOs uh, just talking to him, uh, how do you do this, do, were you there then, etc. And uh, the older NCOs, uh, I think, relished their, their position as a mentor. And in fact, a vast majority of the candidates for Delta come out of the Ranger units. So uh, this thing about the chasm between the units and the friction and uh, we don't like you and you don't like us, uh, a, a little bit of it was there, but uh, certainly not uh, as dramatic as portrayed in the movie. Yes, I uh, will sort of say the same thing, Lee, and will tell you that uh, it was very minimal. And when you consider people living as close as we live together day in and day out with the intensity and the, uh, the stress levels, I think it was all kept uh, very well in perspective and it was very few. And uh, I being the senior ranking ranger guy there at the time, I can truly say that all the way down to the youngest uh, Delta NCO, who I knew them all very well, uh, nothing but the greatest respect. And, and I think the soldiers felt that way. The friction was very minor. Uh, and I, I agree with what you said, and I'm glad you said that because from the Ranger perspective, I want to echo that as well. Uh, there was nothing but great respect, and it all generates all the way back to what Tom said earlier. 
We trained together all the time, whether it was a task force aviation piece, whether it was a Delta piece, or whether it was a Ranger piece. People were not training together for the first time and starting something they haven't done before. And that's the reason we were able to do it as well as we did, is because of that. In fact, this squadron and this company and many of the aviators worked together uh, two years previously doing rehearsals for the Gulf War. I, I remember flying some long hours in the back of Cliff Walcott's Blackhawk, wishing, uh, badly wishing he would set down so uh, we could hit the men's room. And uh, it was the exact same Ranger company, different commander, a lot of different faces, but the same company nonetheless. And I uh, have heard that, you know, sometimes when people uh, want to take a little shot at you or something like that, that it can be considered flattery. And this was Captain Steele, uh, the company commander there being shown, who they were obviously uh, jabbing at a little bit. But at the same time, he, uh, by all means, was the company commander for that company. He was in charge of it, and he did it very, very well, day in and day out for the entire time that we were there, without questioning. I think what you've seen so far is an introduction, uh, in, as the movie did it, Previously, there was a chess scene, and that was actually the introduction of uh, uh, the two fellows who won the Congressional Medal of Honor out of Delta. And uh, uh, Lee knows him better than I, but I think it's important that uh, through this whole movie, one of the overriding and paramount uh, focuses for Lee and I during the making of the movie were the memory of uh, the soldiers, the professionalism, the valor, and uh, these two fellows won the Congressional Medal of Honor, which is our nation's highest award. And uh, Lee knows him better than I do. Both Randy Sugar and Gary Gordon, as Tom said, were snipers. They were uh, introspective, quiet guys, very smart, very witty, a lot of fun to be around, consummate professionals. And, and a lot of people have asked me, uh, subsequent to 93, why did they volunteer for a suicide mission or did they volunteer for a suicide mission? The answer is uh, an unqualified no. Uh, they went in... Uh, with, with the uh, full confidence that uh, some people call arrogance that a uh, highly trained soldier has when he goes into a mission knowing that he can accomplish it uh, successfully and then get out. They knew it would be tough. Uh, they knew that uh, there was a chance, of course, for injury or death, but certainly not volunteering for a suicide mission. And that's not the mindset of a special operator, anybody that uh, volunteers, and everybody in the military today is a volunteer because it's an all-volunteer force. What you have here is multiple volunteers, volunteer for airborne training, ranger training, accession into Delta, flight school, uh, you name it. Uh, these are multiple, multiple volunteers that, that are uh, up on this screen and that are uh, depicted and are, are trained. So. Uh, they know what their focus is, and they know what they're about, and they look forward to uh, serving their country and having the opportunity. When, when they're there and something's going on, uh, they're looking to be involved and not left out and to get into the fray. As far as, uh, as their expectations, they only had one focus, and that was to assist the wounded Americans that were down in uh, Super 6-4. And I'm sure they fully intended and expected to see uh, additional American soldiers showing up uh, from convoys from the airfield, which were working simultaneously. But they took the opportunity to, to seize the initiative and to make a difference where they could as fast as they could, and they certainly did. But they also expected to uh, see some more Americans. That did not happen on this day to, due to the... Uh, the large volume of fire and debris and uh, tough moving through that city.
epileptic going home. Sergeant Eversman, I believe right there in the movie is when you're getting ready to uh, take charge of uh, a chalk, and uh, maybe you can say why that really happened. You know, in the movie, this, uh, this scene comes across a little more of a coronation than a uh, <laughs> assumption of command. And uh, what had happened are my platoon sergeant, uh, Sergeant First Class Hardy, had unfortunately been called back to the States on a family emergency at the end of September. Uh, and I was the next highest ranking ranger on his aircraft. So uh, the obvious next course of action was to have the second in command myself uh, be in charge of that aircraft. And, uh, you know, I tell people that's that's one of the things we learn early on in in this community, and particularly as young rangers, this this fallout one drill where we try and develop young leaders to act as as the men in charge uh, at any opportunity. So when this happened, uh, it, it, as I said, it wasn't quite as dramatic uh, as the movie pointed it out to be, but it certainly was a big responsibility that that uh, changed the complexion a little bit for, for myself. This is actual intel. It wasn't a coronation, huh? No, it should have been, though. <laughs> This scene lays the groundwork for the uh, entire battle on the 3rd and 4th of October. And it, it kind of uh, used some of the right words, such as actual intelligence and uh, mutually corroborating intel. The fact is we had very poor human intelligence on the ground, or human, which is really about the only way you're going to be able to uh, snatch an individual who doesn't want to be snatched. Uh, you can use all the imagery and signals intelligence you want, but uh, that's not going to give you the complete picture. So. Um, we as a task force did everything right in terms of getting mutually corroborating uh, intelligence and uh, what human we had. There were a lot of uh, times that uh, something came in that just didn't pass the smell test uh, and so we didn't do that mission. This one looked pretty good uh, and in fact uh, it turned out to be good intelligence. The mission that day was to uh, capture two of IDEED's lieutenants. We, in fact, did that. It was a successful mission by any measure, uh, which is why all the reports that came out uh, in the following days about a failure and a debacle and a bungled mission and uh, all of that uh, was really shocking to me. Uh, apparently, the only calculus for success is whether or not someone loses a life in a combat operation. So uh, by that measure, the Normandy invasion was one of our biggest failures ever. Uh, every soldier in Task Force Ranger will tell you it was a magnificent battle, hard-fought, hard-won victory for our side. Uh, unfortunately, history recorded it somewhat differently, and I'm, I'm glad that this movie gives an opportunity to correct the record. But this scene here is uh, a representation of the planning sequence that goes on, and uh, what we did based on what uh, Danny and Tom were talking about, all the rehearsals we did, and the previous six missions, uh, when you're going to grab someone, you got to do it where they are. You can't wait until the time and place of your choosing. you got to go when and where you know they are, which means you have to act very quickly. And uh, we had the planning down to uh, uh, science. It was literally a matter of minutes to get everyone kitted up in the helicopters and gone in order to go to wherever we had to go. A, a, a quick point here, you, you see one of our snipers there, Dan Bush, with hair down to his shoulders. Uh, the producers of the movie had to do something to differentiate between the helicopter pilots and the rangers and the delta operators. And it was hard. You know, you put names on helmets and different kinds of equipment, but in, at day's end, you can't tell one from the other. So 
the Delta guys had uh, some scraggly beards and long hair, but in fact, everyone had uh, very close shorn hair and uh, clean shaven on a daily basis. What's not the like? And of course, the importance of accuracy here was we have to point out that uh, that Lieutenant Colonel McKnight there, I have no idea why he was smoking because the one I remember myself, I was not smoking. So I have to clarify that uh, for sure real quick. But uh, that it is very important uh, what you talked about in terms of how quick we could do a mission. Uh, we had, in all honesty, on this day, uh, probably more time to be prepared uh, exactly the way we wanted to than we did on most any missions because it did take a little time to identify that building. And we weren't going anywhere, as you well know, until uh, we knew exactly what the target was going to be. And uh, so from that perspective that day, I think uh, uh, there was no problem having what we needed and knowing where we were going and the intel was good. And I've had that same question asked me many, many times. People say, well, knowing that you're much better in the daytime, I mean at nighttime, than you are in the daytime than the than the bad guys. Why would you go at 3:30 in in the afternoon yeah. uh, to do an operation in, in a bad part of town like that? And it's it's not a, a very it's a, a ugly answer or smart answer, but the truth is, as you said, the target is there. You take advantage of that opportunity. If the mission is go, you go. You don't probably get them to cooperate and wait three hours till it gets dark because they probably were smart enough to know if they stayed there much over an hour, they were going to have company. And so they were smart enough to realize those things too. So your point I agree with, and it has to be pointed out, and that is the targets there you go when you can. I think it's important to realize that, uh, and it's been mentioned here, weaving throughout the conversation about six previous missions, this was the seventh. Backing up even further, we were there two months. We had spun up. There was always intelligence at some level almost every day. We flew in this city every day and every night, and it numbed the population to our presence. Often I'm asked, well, they knew you were coming, because, didn't they, because you had 16 or 19 aircraft, and surely they knew that. No, what they knew was that we flew every day in that city and every night. We also spun up almost every day and probably I would say 40 times totally over that two-month period. We decided to launch based upon actionable intelligence, based upon locations of personalities, the mission, to get certain individuals uh, six times prior to this mission. And oh, by the way, three of them were in the day and three were at night because that's when the intel said the people were where they were. So that's why it went. Or you, uh, you will pass up the opportunity to accomplish the mission if you choose not to go, and that's fine too. And we chose not to go many times. And the mission profile was different uh, many times because I know uh, there were times when the vehicles never left the compound. Uh, I know there was one mission that aircraft were not used to put people in. It was a combination of the uh, Delta operators and Rangers being in vehicles only. Uh, so I think we, in those six previous missions, did something different almost every time, one way or the other, whether it was day, night, vehicles, air, whatever the piece was, there was no one way to do it. And amen with what you pointed out, Tom, you flew every day, many times every day. So it wasn't like automatically when you take off, something was going to happen. And uh, I think the communications that shown that they had uh, was a little more sophisticated in the movie than it was in real life over there, as I recall, in terms of how they talked to each other on cell phones or something of that nature. Yeah. They had 
to me, when I was on the street there, it was obvious there was a command and control at work, but it was nowhere as uh, sophisticated or probably efficient as, as what's depicted here. And, the, you know, the thing about the signal fires and the barricades, uh, that's precisely why we did the signature flights. If they did that every time they saw the helos launched, uh, they would have run out of barricade material. Yeah, and it goes back to the environment, and it's, it's tough to uh, explain unless you've experienced it. The environment was... Uh was austere. There was no power grid in that city. There was no electricity. It was dark every night. They burned things all the time, at a minimum, just to cook their meal in the evening. They set fires um, and had cooking fires, and they also did it for the, the purposes depicted in the movie. But this, uh, this was a densely populated urban environment. In an urban environment, and I'll make this point right now, it's probably the most brutal combat you're going to get into. It is short distances. It's street to street, house to house, door to door. It is not a desert storm. It's not an Afghanistan. This environment is different from those previous ones, and I think that's a that was a shock to a lot of people, and people assume things uh, because the last previous combat operation this nation had been in was a desert storm. And it was very, uh, gave the impression of antiseptic, clean, remote, and standoff. Bombs could go down air shafts, people would die, and uh, that's how you could do this at long distance and remotely. That's true, and that's great if you can do it in that environment, but in this environment, that's not the case at all. And uh, if they have a weapon, and you have a weapon, and they see you, and you see them, uh, the guy who hits his uh, target first wins, and uh, the technology edge is greatly reduced in a direct firefight like this in this kind of an environment. Another aspect of it is it's three-dimensional. It's, it's most ground combat is two-dimensional. This you have people in windows, multiple stories, rooftops, uh, you name it. One of the things to point out that uh, just occurred there is uh, the task force was preparing for this mission. It, show, it shows clearly that people are adjusting what they're taking uh, in terms of how much uh, water they may take or whether they take their night vision devices and things of that nature. And people have asked, you know, why would you not have everything all the time? Well, the key is if we're going to do a daytime operation, we think in terms of in, out as quickly as possible, get the mission done. If you can lighten your load by not taking something and maybe taking more ammunition or something, that's what you would try to do. The individual soldier would never make that decision. That's the reason there were Sergeant Eversmans and there was Sergeant Watsons and people of that nature that those decisions were made based on what that NCO, that person in charge, wanted to do. So a little bit different than what's shown. Individual soldiers don't make those decisions on what they carry or do not carry from the Ranger perspective, and they do adjust their load based on the mission and, and what they have to have for it because uh, every mission is not exactly the same. You know, sir, I'd just throw in on that, that last scene. Uh, you know, on all the prior missions that, that I had participated in, uh, going back to our initial plan of going on a vehicle takedown or a hard site, uh, the only thing that changed was uh, the location in the city. Uh, but as we templated some other uh, potential targets, uh, we all knew where, what part of the objective we would be on. So this, this briefing, really the, the, this frago that we got, uh, literally could have taken place under a turning rotor at, at the helicopter. It's nothing more than showing a, a drawing of the objective and pointing out where our particular blocking position was going to be. And I have to say that I don't, I don't think that any of the uh, leaders 
mean, Task Force Ranger, lead by proxy, kind of as is shown here. But uh, I don't recall from my little view as a, as a leader on that particular day as this mission being partic any particularly different than any of the six prior missions uh, that we had done in the, in the grand scheme of, of loading up and, and flying out. From that perspective, I agree. Uh, we did know we were going into Indian country, though. That, uh, no question about that. Yeah, I'll, I'll give you an add-on to that, uh, Matt, that you're not aware of. Uh, at the soldier level, you get the same schematic. You're, you're right there at the direct fire. What side of the building do I have or what corner am I protecting? And largely, your task remains exactly the same. At a higher level, uh, in the jock, there was significant concern about this location. On all previous missions, uh, the six we'd done, Quite frankly, there was an open quadrant or we were at the edge of the city or the ocean was on one side. This one was downtown. Everybody knew that this was the most densely populated portion of the city. This is the first mission that I carried rockets on my gunbirds. Because of collateral damage concerns, we were only carrying miniguns and ammo. I specifically asked to carry rockets on this mission. And I viewed it at that time as not shooting rockets into crowds, but as a crowd control measure where we might have to shoot it in the side of buildings get louder bangs and explosions because if we got a reaction, it would be large because of the densely populated area, this portion of the uh, town that the mission was going into. And I think that's sort of what's being pointed out in the piece of the movie right now, uh, the briefing that's being given to the uh, convoy personnel that I uh, would be leading that day. I don't think you would ever have seen me briefing th that many people at one time because it was just a few key leaders like uh, Sergeant Eversman and... Uh, people in charge of the vehicles themselves. And that point, uh, I don't know if I use the exact words that were used in the movie about it, uh, you know, uh, being uh, as bad as it was, but I agree with you, Tom, that we did know we were about to embark on, without question, the worst part of town that you could go into. But if we did it the way we expected in and out, we would still be uh, accomplishing the same thing as we always did uh, on every mission. And uh, it's important to, I think, also to point out there's no naivety here and there's no cockiness and uh, ig ignoring the fact that uh, we know we're in a, uh, in a dangerous profile when we're doing those missions. We did rehearsals about contingencies all the time. And we, in fact, rehearsed um, losing an aircraft. The analysis of that was pretty simple. A little bird, a smaller aircraft, if it went down, uh, if we could secure the site, I could also sling load that aircraft out, pick it up out of the city with a Blackhawk. If a Blackhawk went down, there was no getting a Blackhawk out of that site. So we had rehearsed that contingency. We had also trained and showed uh, the operators where to place thermite grenades on those birds to destroy them in place. Because if we lost a bird in that city, we knew we'd probably, not probably, but almost certainly have to destroy it in place and evacuate that site. Which, in fact, we did with both. Uh, which is, in fact, words. exactly the way it played out, as you're saying, Lee, which is the value of rehearsals and the value of analysis and looking at your mission. And there weren't many surprises here. There were things that happened that day that we wish didn't happen, but had they been thought about as potentially happening? Absolutely. Had they been rehearsed? They sure were. In fact, when, when we left uh, the morning of the 4th of October, the Super 6-1 crash site, uh, I made sure everyone was up and out of there, and I saw one of our soldiers going back the other way. I asked him where he was going. He said, I, I forgot I got to put a thermite in there. Right. And it was so matter of fact, and, and you right. know, it was, oops, I forgot to pick up the car keys type of thing. Right. And, uh, it's humorous in hindsight.
I'll give you another Stranger Than Truth uh, example here. And it talks to rehearsals and contingencies. Uh, we taught the guys who stayed in the aircraft how to f fire the door guns because we anticipated that a crew chief, and I'm talking about the snipers, that would normally stay on board the aircraft after insertion. Uh, people like uh, Brad Hollings and uh, uh, Randy Shugart and Gary Gordon. Those guys that stayed on board were taught how to fire the door guns. And in fact, on that day, the reason only two guys got off at Mike Durant's crash site instead of three, because there was a third Delta operator on that bird, uh, was because he was manning a door gun for a crew chief had been wounded, just like we had rehearsed. And so he stayed to provide fire to his buddies at, at a rate of 4,000 rounds a minute from those miniguns. And that's how he could best contribute to the uh, the situation at Six Force crash site. Yeah, that was Brad, who in fact lost his uh, left leg above the knee as a result of an RPG round that hit that helicopter, but it made it back to friendly territory. Exactly. Here's the communications thing we were talking about earlier in terms of I think it's being shown a little more sophisticated than uh, what really took place uh, over there, uh, to the best of all of our knowledge, at least. And there's a good picture of all the helicopters flying at you here, and in fact, it was double that quantity. There's eight in this frame, and uh, in fact, there were 16 and some uh, surveillance birds overhead. So double that and the noise and the roar and the sheer combat power projected by that force there was pretty daunting and uh, no one ever really stood up to it until uh, unless we decided to go into a portion of the city. Uh, it was too powerful of a force. Yeah, the, the city was so small and so densely packed you could uh, fly to wherever you're going there in, in literally two or three minutes. So this, to me, this is some of the most beautiful footage in the movie about the uh, the insertion of the helicopters, and you combine that with the movie and the slow motion, and it's incredible. I wish it lasted uh, a lot longer than it does, but in reality, <laughs> the insertion didn't take anywhere near this long. Yeah, t takeoff to insertion was 10 minutes, and that was to do a big loop and make sure we were coming in uh, the way we wanted to come in from. You could fly crossways in that city in two minutes. You could fly lengthwise in that city in about four and a moment ago, they showed Osman Otto still uh, being in the picture. Uh, and I had people ask me, why would he have still been in the area? Well, in all honesty, Osman Otto, after he was captured within a day, uh, he was uh, not in the city of Mogadishu any longer after that. He was taken away to where other prisoners had been taken. So that's just to clarify that he was not uh, really in the area, but uh, uh, had already been taken away after he was captured. This is, a, this is a great series of scenes right here. You can see the interaction between the guys. You get a real sense of the mission profile and the flying and the, the anticipation and the mounting of the insertion and guys on the pods riding outside and uh, guys getting ready to go in and a, a real convergence here. This here about the reaction in these vehicles and everybody being ready for our arrival again, as we pointed out, uh, that's not really accurate. They uh, reacted afterwards uh, as quick as they could but being prepared like this is uh, adds to the drama of the movie, but is not a real appropriate representation as far as accurate. We always had tactical surprise. We picked when we went. Uh, every day and every night we flew. When we decided to assault a target was uh, our time in choosing. We arrived in the vehicles that day to the objective area of the Olympic Hotel without incident in terms of getting there. We had no roadblocks to go through. To get there, uh, we were in position on time without any difficulty and then started taking fire after we were in the objective area and all that blockage and stuff you were seeing put together there did occur afterwards for sure. Ran into a lot of it then. 
They are very adept at putting up roadblocks. Oh, yes. Burning part tires. of their national pastime is putting up roadblocks and shooting at each other, but uh, they do it quickly. See a burning tire, go there because that means something's going on. You know, the one thing from my perspective going into this mission that we did know for sure was that it was going to be a long, high fast rope for insertion. I think there were some two- or three-story buildings at our insertion point, maybe some telephone poles that we had seen, I don't recall. But I knew we, we knew that it was probably going to be a, a 50- or 60-foot fast rope going, on, going in, which would have been the highest one that we had done uh, since we'd been in Somalia. Uh, as it turns out, you see a little later on in the movie that it was a uh, particularly long fast rope insertion. I think around 65 or 70 feet for our chalk four. And, and this does not do justice to the complete brownout you had from the dust there, which is why they had to rope in from so high. The helos couldn't get down in that uh, blinding cloud of dust. You know, when you have 16 or 17 aircraft coming in and then dispersing right over the objective, uh, I remember sitting in the catbird seat listening to the pilot talk and out looking at both doors, there was nothing but brownout. And again, as we said, hovering about 65 feet, you know, the rotor wash from the Blackhawks uh, blew off or blew up anything that was, wasn't nailed down. And, uh, uh, you know, finally the, the pilots, we were at a hover, decided that we needed to, to get on the ground as quickly as possible. You get a sense of it right here, but the brownout was uh, much worse. And there's, uh, to the credit of the, the making of the film and everybody here, there was no safety uh, problems during the conduct of this movie. And this is dangerous, real things you're seeing right here. They're real helicopters with real people fast roping from 50, 60 feet. You have the potential to injure or kill somebody in this mission profile just as, just as if it's the real thing, because this is real footage of, of helicopters doing their thing. So... Uh, very fortunate safety-wise, and everybody was very professional about that. And that was, sir, uh, Lieutenant Brian McCroskey's platoon of rangers uh, doing the fast roping, and uh, Lieutenant McCroskey had actually been uh, wounded as an enlisted soldier uh, in Bravo Company on October 3rd and had gone out of, gotten out of the Army, gotten his commission, and come back in to lead uh, a platoon in Bravo Company. The other thing I think it's uh, very, very accurate and, and realistic here is the speed uh, with which a lot of this was taking place. As you saw the Delta operators, for instance, getting off the Little Bird helicopters and immediately moving into, into buildings from top and, and from the bottom, and the way they move so quickly and efficiently, and the same thing with the Rangers coming out of the helicopters, the speed was absolutely phenomenal because from the time that first helicopter would go across the objective area until everybody was on the ground was only a matter of minutes. It was absolutely phenomenal how quickly and efficiently everybody moved, and that was because because it was trained over and over and over again, rehearsed in every possible way, as uh, you pointed out earlier, Tom. You know, this, this scene right here uh, uh, is still a, a debate amongst all the members of Chalk 4, and, sir, I don't know about uh, what you ever heard from the pilots, and I, I don't recall uh, if we were taking fire, and I don't recall whether anybody shot an RPG uh, but I do certainly recall the the helicopter uh, tilting or canting at one point, simply because I remember having to put my hand down uh, to steady myself. 
The ranger that went in right after Todd Blackburn uh, swears he saw him grab the rope. Uh, Todd, I don't believe, ever remembered whether he did or not, whether he fell or missed the rope or whatever. But uh, in actuality, we, we best we can figure is he did take a, a spill for a mighty long way and uh, landed right down at the, the bottom of the, the intersection, uh, which I will say we were about uh, a block and a half or two blocks short of our desired location. Uh, but we knew that going in. The pilot told me exactly where we were, uh, told me that the nose of the aircraft was pointed towards the objective, uh, which I acknowledged and had no, no doubt we would get on the ground and move down to our location. Uh, as you see in this scene here, we, we really did. We're right at a four-way intersection. And right after our first casualty started taking fire from three directions. Yeah, pretty dramatic and uh, very hectic, very loud, very dusty, very noisy. And um, I agree with you, Matt. Uh, I can comment on the RPG. There was no RPG fired at you that, at that exact moment that I'm aware of. Uh, I have no idea why he missed the rope, and, and obviously no one will ever know for sure. But it was loud, noisy, dusty, and... Uh, and it's dangerous. Don't forget it. Yeah, you know, soldiers miss the rope over Fort Benning or Fort Campbell. It's, Absolutely. Uh, it's not the safest uh, method of insertion, certainly one of the fastest. You know, one of the things that I give credit where credit's due uh, from the movie maker's perspective, uh, you know, this scene, while it's not entirely uh, historically accurate, uh, is a pretty good depiction of the life-saving events that went on when actually we had a special forces medic and a ranger private who was nothing more than EMT qualified uh, that worked to uh, stabilize Todd Blackburn uh, and, and saved his life. And we, we tried to call for uh, ground extraction, uh, which wasn't, you know, we couldn't move vehicles up at the time. So I turned and uh, Sergeant Casey Joyce got an aid and litter team and, uh, without thinking, moved him down to the objective. That was the, the guidance we had to move him down to the vehicles. Uh, and literally, they were moving the, the litter, putting it down, engaging the enemy, picking back up and moving the entire time. That goes back to the training that we were talking about earlier. Every, every training iteration you do, you have someone go down with a variety of different types of wounds. You have a key leader fall out uh, so that someone else has to step up to the plate. So the fact that uh, Casey, you know, sees the initiative immediately, it's not surprising. It would have been surprising had he not. Roger. The other point I would just, just throw out, uh, going back a few scenes where they showed uh, Colonel McKnight and uh, Dominic Pilla uh, at their logger site taking fire, and, and Pilla says, uh, you know, they're, sir, they're shooting at us. What should I do? And Colonel McKnight in this movie says, well, shoot back. And, uh, you know, I wouldn't speak for you, sir, but I would tell you back at, at my position at Chalk 4, uh, what was so amazing to me, this was the first time that um, we were directly engaged, we being my particular blocking position. And, uh, you know, the Rangers did the battle drill uh, to standard. You know, no one hesitated at engaging the enemy uh, when the threat presented itself. And we had had this debate about the the great SLA Marshall theory. And I tell you, had uh, had uh, Todd Blackburn been been vertical, we'd have probably been 100% uh, in engaging the enemy. 
I looked at that in the movie also, Matt, and I don't recall anyone asking me about, you know, returning fire because we had the rules of engagement that uh, took care of that without question. And uh, that that was okay for the movie. But no, I don't think anybody asked my permission because they knew what the rules were already. And uh, this part with Blackburn, I do recall that... Uh, I was up there, uh, had linked up with the uh, Delta operators as we were getting ready to load the prisoners when we uh, made the decision to evacuate uh, Todd Blackburn back. And that's uh, when we use a couple of other vehicles here in a moment to do that with and uh, send them back with Sergeant Struker. Danny, would you also comment on this particular scene? Uh, Tom Sizemore doesn't really have words with the Sergeant Sanderson character, but he says it'll take five minutes. He says nothing takes five minutes. That... Uh, we had long discussions with Ridley about that. He had to do something to draw it out and make it last longer. The fact is the assault force would never call for the convoy unless they had everyone ready to go and load up. Um, so from my perspective, this is this is a, a scene based on reality, but, but which had to be changed a bit in order to make a certain point. And the way it actually happened... Uh, as I recall it, was I drove up in my vehicle by just my vehicle alone, just the people in my vehicle, to the target site, linked up with the Delta operator on the ground. He confirmed with me face-to-face -face that we have all the prisoners. We're ready to load. We're getting, and they were moving them down at that time. And so he and I had direct face-to-face -face contact that we're ready to do this. I immediately called the vehicles up there, and we were ready to start loading. And when uh, I brought those vehicles up is when, as Matt Eversman just pointed out, that's when we got the vehicles pulled aside to get uh, Blackburn out of there because we still didn't know how long we were going to be in there to get the entire mission complete, and the, uh, it was very clear it was important to get him out of there. So that, that was very correctly. We made face-to-face. -face. We knew we had the prisoners ready to load. Then I brought all the vehicles up. And at the same time, we were sending Sergeant Struker back with Blackburn, as you can see there. And that's when uh, Sergeant uh, Pila was killed. Uh, actually, Sergeant Pila was uh, in the back of a Humvee. Uh, there were three vehicles in this little element that took Todd Blackburn back. Uh, he was put in the middle of the three vehicles, uh, an open-type cargo vehicle, Humvee. And there was one in the front, one in the back, as uh, depicted with people uh, uh, manning guns like the 50 caliber or the Mark 19. But Sergeant Pila was actually sitting in the hatchback part of the lead vehicle uh, when he was uh, shot uh, from a doorway as they rounded a corner. And at the same time he was shot, the person that uh, shot him was also uh, killed. Yeah, it's sort of ad hoc here in the movie where Sergeant Hoot Gibson volunteers to take his team back with those uh, three vehicles. But in reality, we had a number of operators with your vehicles, as well as uh, our four SEALs uh, who comported themselves quite heroically throughout this. So there's really nothing ad hoc about it. Very true. In fact, as you as you look at the film here, it's pretty darn accurate. Uh, what you're seeing is, is largely a pretty accurate depiction of what's going on uh, on the ground. And there's a lot of firing, there's vehicles getting shot up. The longer we stay, and we've just had Super 6-1 hit, the longer, the uh, greater the intensity of the fire and uh, the reaction of the, the crowd. And it, uh, at this point here, this is 40 minutes after insertion when Super 6-1 is hit. And quite frankly, we knew from experience that 
Uh, we really wanted to be in and out of our locations in under 30 minutes. And at this point here, we're at 40, probably a couple minutes from being out of there when uh, we take a round in the tail rotor. So we were very close to mission complete when we have, in effect, right now, completion of one mission and a complete change of mission, an additional mission, and that's get to the crash scene of Super 6-1. And, and that's the fog of war that Matt was talking about. Had Todd Blackburn remained vertical, who knows what would have happened. The, the takedown itself took 20 minutes. Everyone was ready to go on the hour. But with all the different moving parts and the four security chocks being decisively engaged, 20 minutes after that is when 6-1 went down. This is a great crash sequence. In reality, the aircraft crashed into an alley, very, very tight alley, almost not wide enough to get a Humvee or the vehicles you see here, the, the new modern Jeep, if you will, in that alley. That's how narrow it was. A five-ton truck, which is part of Danny's vehicle uh, convoy, would not fit in that alley. Um, and so you had a crushed mass of uh, machinery in an alley, and uh, that was the location. Additionally, uh, people asked, uh, couldn't you see it, and how come you can't just go over there? Uh, cloud of dust, and that's it. There was no post-crash fire. There was no smoke. And you can see what you can see to the next corner, and then beyond that, you're you're blind, and you got to go up and look around the corner to see what's there. Yeah, those streets are not laid out in a grid either, um, not, not even close to it. Uh, a lot of uh, refugee shacks have been put up where otherwise there would be a street or an alley. So we tend to think in terms of our concept of what a city looks like. Uh, Mogadishu does not resemble that. And what you just said is very truly, you said the words street and alley, because in some cases streets look like alleys, in some places alleys look like streets, so it's a matter of how wide it could be in order to get that five-ton truck that Tom just referred to down. And some places where we thought we could maybe, from the air it looked like we could make a turn into, we couldn't from the ground just because it was not large enough, because there would be other debris that would be blocking the way. And that did cause some of the difficulty in terms of getting over there. But we could not see the crash site from the Olympic Hotel anyway. Uh, we did have to move either by foot or vehicle or something to get over there. As it turned out, um, I was never able to move uh, my blocking position uh, down to the, the intended location uh, we were pretty much hunkered down at this intersection, uh, as I said, firing, uh, engaging the enemy and, you know, to the northeast and west. And shortly there, shortly after getting the call that the PC was secured, uh, I was actually looking down to the, to the south towards the Olympic Hotel when my saw gunner, Dave Deemer, uh, who was facing to the east, actually turned and told me he saw the Black Hawk crash and several blocks down the east down this alleyway uh, was this pile of rubble. Unfortunately for us, you know, we were taking pretty good fire uh, about a block or two blocks away. There were some vehicles in the road where the Somalis were engaging us. So that, that kind of, I think, opened the door for Lieutenant DiDomaso, uh, but presented obviously an obstacle for, for us to move down. Um, you know, directly down that alleyway. In fact, Colonel McKnight's Humvee actually creeped up to our location. Um, I remember I had just gotten the word from Captain Steele to move to the crash site. Colonel McKnight pulled up and said, hey, we're driving to the crash site. Let's get on the vehicles, we'll go. And uh, as Lee said, it's, you know, it's not a grid, so you can't just go a block, turn right, go down two blocks and turn right, and there you are. You go a block and, you know, wind up running out at some oblique angle. 
but yeah, we could we could see it, although it was far enough away that it just looked like a big pile of rubble. The only thing I recall uh, that distinguished it from uh, the other garbage in that city was that I could see uh, a black helmet uh, down somewhere in the uh, in the distance. In fact, enough that I put my hand up to uh, let them know that there were friendlies. You know, that they were looking at friendlies down at our location. They look good moving. I think that's one of the things that uh, every time I see a war movie, I always get distracted by inaccuracies in the uniform or whatever, and uh, I didn't get distracted too much here. And I don't—I haven't heard anybody comment on that, so I—I I think that was uh, kind of interesting. Caused you to be able to look at uh, what was really going on. I think. I've got a lot of favorable comments from our old comrades about that aspect of it. This scene, in part, is based on an actual event. We had an operator who was uh, buried by a wall. An RPG went off close to him and buried him, and all the guys around there thought he'd been killed. And, you know, you see the, the bricks start to move on their own, and pretty soon old Jake extricates himself from the rubble, and everyone takes a sigh of relief and gets back to the business at hand. Showing the convoy moving through the streets like that, the one thing I do not recall is that the streets were quite that clean and quite that open and everything, <laughs> yeah. just as you referred to earlier, Lee, when you were talking about they were so small and there were alleys and they just streets just really weren't quite that uh, open and clean for us to drive through. And I think, Matt, you'd recall the same thing, too, from being with the vehicles. Something I found out the hard way, you could actually start down a street with a vehicle and then the buildings would neck down so that on the same street you could no longer go forward. And then, you, as mm -hmm. you all know, Danny, trying to back up under fire is no fun. Exactly right. That's right. You found that out later that evening. Yeah. <laughs> Six blocks, sir. We need to haul ass. And this is a depiction of 6-1's crew. And uh, in fact, uh, and I guess this is supposed to be Dan Bush. That's Dan up. Bush crawling. I, I like this scene for several reasons. It, it pays a proper tribute to Dan Bush, who single-handedly kept the horde off while we were able to, to uh, bring in the SAR bird and some of the ground forces for reinforcement. Uh, from the jock, we could see someone crawl out of that wreckage, so we knew there were live soldiers in there. And that's, that's pretty significant. It was, in fact, Dan Bush, one of our snipers. And then, uh, Tom, you want to tell about uh, the, the role of the little bird? Yeah, you'll, the... see, um, you'll see very shortly here a little bird come in, a small aircraft and uh, two pilots, and they land next to the crash scene. And the pilot who gets out will assist in getting uh, Dan and another guy into the aircraft. And Jim that is Smith. Jim Smith, and that is a pretty accurate uh, replay of uh, what went on. That aircraft landed in the street miraculously, Neither one of the pilots on board or the aircraft ever took a round, even though they fired their weapons and killed several Somalis up in, behind, in front and behind them. Uh, what was amazing is that the guy who uh, flies the aircraft in the movie and 
recreates that scene is the same pilot who did it in real life, and that was uh, Keith Jones and a phenomenal a bit of individual uh, heroism and just trying to take care and do whatever you can at, at the moment. You know, this scene that we're seeing right now is, is a perfect example of one of the things I think that's very good about the movie Black Hawk Down is that a lot of these little individual stories and vignettes are actually true events, even though in the movie it might be a different character or it might be a little out of sequence. A lot of these little uh, bits and pieces that you see actually did happen, like that uh, particular scene with uh, Scott Galantine uh, being wounded and uh, had his thumb shot, uh, that had actually happened back at the blocking position uh, chronologically sometime before this event would actually take place. But a lot of these things that stand out actually did happen. And when Scott uh, was shot, his thumb was pretty well shot up uh, about off, as uh, you pointed out, Matt. That was earlier at the blocking position, and I was in the vicinity uh, close to him when that happened. And uh, as I have related to uh, others in uh, 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 another interview, uh, it just so happened that when I saw the movie uh, on a Sunday afternoon, uh, little did I know that Scott Galantine would be in the theater watching the movie with his wife the same time that I sat there and watched it, and we ran into each other as we were leaving the theater. And as uh, I mentioned to Lee earlier, uh, a moment uh, of of recollection, to say the least, between Scott Galantine and I as we sat there and watched a movie together that we had no idea we were in the same theater about 200 feet apart for two and a half hours watching this movie. And uh, that's a, a real vignette to that piece right there. The real purpose, I think, of this scene here is to show that there wasn't just mass shooting of anybody and everybody on the streets. That soldier there obviously sees that uh, it probably can be passed up to kill those two people there, one who's probably going to die anyway, but to shoot that young boy. Not that young boys and women weren't shot that day, but it was not indiscriminate, um, but they were part of the combat. That's a very key point. You know, our rules of engagement, I think, overall are pretty reasonable. Is if you discern a threat, uh, then you eliminate it. Left a lot up to the discretion of the individual soldier, as it should be. But we weren't prepared for uh, unarmed women walking out there with an armed combatant behind her billowing skirts or 10- and 12-year-old boys too small to put the butt of an AK-47 against their shoulder so they fire it under their arm. Uh, growing up in America just doesn't prepare you for that type of thing. You know, I, I've told people this several times that it seemed at the at the time that uh, there were just Somalis in mass everywhere, and uh, you know I called it "Shoot an American Day." Uh, and what was so odd to me was that there would be uh, people that would be uh, kind of magnetized by the fight, whereas you know in our culture we kind of back or shy away from from danger, you know, this was just the, the opposite, I thought. I think the one thing that uh, sort of uh, to point out in this scene here is this is, of course, when the three vehicles return that originally were sent back to evacuate uh, Todd Blackburn after he had been injured on in his fall from the rope, and Sergeant Pila was uh, 
shot as part of that evacuation and killed. But uh, I think the numbers of uh, soldiers, the rangers, and uh, running around in the area here probably is a a little bit uh, overstated because I don't think we had that many left back in the rear because pretty much our mission uh, meant that everybody was doing something very significant and there weren't too many people sitting around. So probably a, a little uh, exaggeration there in terms of the number of people left behind for any mission. That's a good point. You know, our, our total task force number was capped anyway, and so there just wasn't a lot of fat in that task force. This is that scene with the little bird, and the pilot will get out here shortly. Is actually the pilot who did it on that day. This is really a good scene, and it, uh, like I said, it pays a proper tribute to a, a real hero, Dan Bush, and Jim Smith helped get him out of there and was uh, pretty badly wounded himself in so doing. They left in the little bird. Two other snipers were on board there, Jim McMahon and Steve Del Ellis, who were both uh, beaten up pretty bad in the wreck, but they managed to get out and uh, hold off the mob. And about this time, uh, what you see also is the first ranger uh, group arriving to, which is this is uh, really in reality would have been Lieutenant D. Tommaso uh, and his boys arriving from what would have been uh, Chalk to the rangers. And uh, they arrived just about the same time, right as the little bird is uh, ready to leave. As you can see here, too, and this is some of the dynamics of an urban fight, as soon as you want to move fast and you're getting shot at from all directions, but as soon as somebody gets hit, you have to stop. And then that's a weapon that's not able to be employed. There's Keith right there. That's a, uh, somebody's going to have to tend them, which means they got to put their weapon down. And then uh, you go to move and somebody else gets hit and you got to go through the same drill. So you rapidly become uh, bogged down and lose your mobility in order to stay together and then treat the, the wounded and then try to move a little bit. So going a few blocks was a very big task uh, the longer that, uh, that the guys tried this. And the one thing I would point out medically here is that uh, People were wounded and people were taking care of uh, each other. It wasn't a medic that was taking care of somebody every time somebody got uh, wounded. It was a buddy taking care of a buddy or even an individual taking care of themselves uh, because you, you have many minor wounds that have to be tended and you don't have a medic to run around and do all the doctoring for everybody out there. So the, a tribute to the soldiers was the fact that they knew how to take care of each other as well as take care of themselves when it was necessary. I think over the next period of time here in the movie, it, it, what Tom just referred to is, is really highlighted, and that is you couldn't move freely very long. Uh, you were moving in short uh, spurts and short opportunities from place to place and take cover when you could, and it would take an extremely long time uh, to move any distance at all because you were receiving fire from every window, every door, every corner, uh, top of every building, and the movement was very, very slow, whether it was by vehicle or whether it was by foot. The intensity has increased uh, as the minutes go on here. Uh, it was really like uh, upsetting a beehive and, uh, and having them 
spill out and everyone trying to sting you and also converging. Uh, thousands of people trying to converge. Beehive is a good uh, representation of it. The, the scene where Grizz just got hit, I'd like to comment on that. Uh, the movie shows him being blown in half and that's based on a, a piece in the book which obviously Mark Bowden didn't make up. Someone told him that, but in fact Grizz uh, suffered a what turned out to be a fatal wound to his side, but uh, he, he came in pretty much intact and lived for several hours after he was hit and uh, was uh, fully cogent and uh, talking to people. And I remember talking to a couple of the uh, docs who worked on him that uh, when he knew he was uh, not going to make it, gave him a thumbs up and uh, was truly an inspiration to everyone around there. Yes, I remember when we arrived back in the compound with the vehicles, uh, seeing Grizz shortly thereafter. Like you said, it was a, a significant wound to the side that pretty well took off uh, most of the one leg, but uh, was a little, was not quite as ex uh, exaggerated as shown there. But uh, he, he was still very cogent at that time and cognizant of what was going on. You're right. I had heard that he got wounded and, and knew in my heart he'd be okay. You know, we'd work side by side for a while. And uh, when I got the radio call later that he hadn't made it, it was like a sledgehammer to the gut. And that's uh, Casey Joyce that w just went down there with a shot in the back. You know, again, this was a um, kind of a compilation of several near ambushes that we had gone through. Uh, and the the drill at the time literally uh, was to police up our wounded, pack all rangers that were on the ground back onto, transload onto other vehicles and move off. Uh, again, I think at this point, we were still trying to get to the crash site. Uh, when Sergeant Joyce was shot, we had actually been, uh, uh, I think we were gonna try and turn around and uh, he was actually on the opposite side of the street from me, uh, engaging enemy uh, right across the road and uh, uh, was shot underneath his, uh, you know, right underneath his left arm. Uh, so it was, I don't recall it being quite square in the back like this shows to go back on the, the whole back plate issue early on. But there were several... Uh, several of those events actually happened over a series of ambushes. Yeah, you mentioned about the back plate. Uh, of course, the body armor that we were wearing versus the body armor that uh, a Delta operator would, would wear was different, and our body armor did not have the Ranger body armor as it was called in, and of course has become improved even more so today because you learn from everything you do, but our body armor only had a front plate at that time, had no back plate in it. Uh, it, and so uh, there was some issue about whether there was a plate in the back or not. There was not in the Ranger body armor, but it has been improved, and there is today. It has changed. You know, I think this scene kind of illustrates what you were talking about earlier, Lee, about, um, you know, this urban battlefield. It, it's not a thousand-yard fight. It's a 10-meter it's a fight, and uh, you could engage people literally a stone's throw away, as we just saw in that, that scene, uh, just as you would see people on the rooftops and second floor windows and, and literally all over the city. This scene here depicts the SAR team going in. Uh, the RPG piece of this is, uh, is meant to reflect what happened, which was in the middle of fast roping the rest of the SAR team in this aircraft got hit broadside by an RPG gunner 
and the uh, the crew held their position because there were still guys on the rope. Did a great job, even though they took a pretty good blast, and um, then released the ropes and uh, limped back to the airfield. And that aircraft was out of the fight at that moment too. That aircraft, the SAR team, Tom, you're referring to as the search and rescue people going in to help at the first crash site, right? Yeah, it was a 15-man team that uh, comprised of Rangers, operators, and uh, PJs. That crew there went back, and I had a spare of each aircraft, one Black Hawk, one Little Bird gun, and one Slick. And that spare bird, uh, that crew jumped in that aircraft and, and uh, quick spun it up and took off. And right as they took off was when... Uh, not really depicted in the movie, but Super 6-2 is also hit, and uh, that's the aircraft that put in uh, uh, Randy and Gordy, and um, they got hit and limped back to the port and crash-landed at the port, which was another aircraft that got shot down, just did not crash in the city, or else we would have had a, another third crash site that would have had to been dealt with. Tom, to go back to an earlier point of yours about uh, Dan getting hit there and maintaining the hover, as a ground guy, uh, my hat's really off to him to maintain his composure like that just because there were guys still on the rope. Uh, truly a, a great act on his part. And I think it's just another one of those many, many examples of everybody just doing their job and what they're trained to do and focused. And uh, and together, collectively, it was a phenomenal effort by uh, everybody who was there. Earlier, we saw a, a five-ton vehicle get hit with an RPG, and I wanted to point out then, uh, as we were talking really about something else, but we had already at this point uh, lost uh, some of our vehicles that we were going to be using to take people out. Uh, at this point, we'd already lost two of the five-ton vehicles and really only had one of them operating, and that was when we had the prisoners loaded on as we were uh, moving around the town trying to get to the first crash site uh, as now, of course, the second aircraft has been shot and on its way down. This is uh, Super 6-4. This is Mike Durant's aircraft. Mike Durant uh, eventually was the only survivor at this scene and uh, was held a prisoner for 11 days until he was subsequently released. But at this point right here, um, we pretty much have everything that we have immediately available committed to the fight. Uh, everybody's trying to get to the first crash site. We talked about how difficult movement is. This second crash site is almost a mile away in the same city, same environment. Uh, it's going to be very difficult, impossible for anyone on foot to move from the north crash site to that crash site. And uh, the only people we have left to go in there are, uh, are the uh, two snipers out of 6-2. Uh, and uh, they're put into it with the expectation that uh, somebody's going to get there shortly. But as it turned out... Uh, pretty much everything was thrown into the fight at that point, and subsequent uh, vehicles were turned back from the airfield due to the high volume of fire and roadblocks. So this is a classically is what we call a culmination point. We threw everything in the fight we had, and it would take some time to gather up uh, additional resources to push back out and make a difference. And Matt, when you referred to a moment ago about... Uh when uh, Sergeant Joyce was uh, shot that we were about to turn around. It was probably actually about this moment when that was occurring because uh, we, I had received word from uh, the jock that they wanted me to try and move the convoy to the second crash site because it was obvious, as Tom just pointed out, nobody else was probably going to be able to get there very easy because everything that tried to get there from either 10th Mountain or from our compound, uh, from anybody we had there was getting 
shot up on the way out. So that was when we were going to try to turn and make our way back through some very, very tough areas to get to that crash site because we were probably the best thing uh, that had a chance to do that, and that became impossible, as we know, too. Yeah, and they, you know, these are not stupid people we're talking about. They knew where any relief effort would come from, and so it was a relatively simple matter for them to establish ambushes at key choke points and create choke points by putting up roadblocks. This is a depiction of the rangers uh, setting up uh, basically a, a place that they're going to stay for the rest of the night, and 6-4 seen here, he's down, and we have a lull until we can get Randy and Gordy in there. But... Uh, as it turned out, everybody closed pretty close to the crash site, but you couldn't tell who was in the next building or if there was anyone in the next building. And as it turned into night, in fact, we only figured that out by putting strobes on the roofs of each building so we could visually tell for sure where was everybody at down there. This upcoming scene, though, shortly is uh, probably one of the most dramatic and gut-wrenching uh, of, uh, of the whole movie. Well done, tremendously done. It reflects uh, the individual heroism of these guys. This is a subsequent multiple times for request for insertion, and General Garrison is depicted as getting involved. Uh, that never happened. Uh, 18 hours, General Garrison never once came on the radio. We commented on that already. Decision was made to put him in by the ground force commander, and uh, they were his guys, and he made that decision, and they wanted to do it, and so it was done. Wasting time here. All right. Refit max out ammo grenades. You got five. This is where they're depicting the fact that the three vehicles that had brought uh, Blackburn back and they were refitting and turning, getting ready to turn around and go back out there as quick as they could to try and reach uh, the second crash site uh, where Mike Durant's helicopter was down because they were the only thing we had back there to, to be able to put together to come out there. And uh, that's what they were faced with. They knew what was going on, but they knew they had to get back out there, and that's what it shows Sergeant Strucker and Sergeant Thomas there preparing to do that. And there's probably a little too many people available at this moment, as, uh, as was actually the case. It could be uh, thrown into the fight here. It looks like quite a few guys, but uh, there's a few guys left, and that's about it. To include the aircraft outside running with people on the pods, uh, uh, everybody had been on pods had already been inserted, and uh, there was nobody flying around yet to be employed. This is one of our actual rangers who went there for the fast roping, who got his uh, big screen debut here. Yeah. The essence of this, though, I think comes through. It's pretty pure, and that's the, the individual moments that people have to have uh, and suck it up and decide to go back out or to uh, jump on a vehicle or to uh, get back into the fight and pretty well done. Speaks to a number of guys and uh, the spirit that was present that day. The one thing I'd like to point out about the RPGs knocking the helicopters down from my perspective was that uh, it shows an RPG being fired uh, so accurately and perfectly, just one being fired and it takes a helicopter down. Uh, it's one of those things, really, if you shoot enough of anything in the air, you can knock something down sooner or later. 
And uh, it wasn't one or two RPGs that were fired that day that happened to knock two aircraft out of the sky. It was probably hundreds of RPGs rounds that were fired into the sky to try and bring an aircraft down before it happened. That's a good point, Danny. Up until this mission, quite frankly, I had seen uh, the maximum amount of RPGs I'd seen fired was the previous mission, and that was about 12 uh, estimate. This day, I'm not sure how many. I'll put it in the hundreds, 200, 300. I don't know. But, I mean, with a 1% success rate, then that's about probably what they had or less. Eventually, you hit one of those aircraft uh, in the right spot, it's going to come down. And uh, with a tail rotor shot, uh, which uh, two out of hundreds of rounds did hit, uh, that's going to bring that bird down. I've had a few people ask me, were they aiming for the tail rotors? Well, like you said, Danny, you, <laughs> it's a quick point and shoot, and uh, if you shoot enough of them, sooner or later you'll get something. Yeah, I guess the good news is uh, 99 out of 100 missed. Well, uh, they all landed somewhere. <laughs> yeah, they all went somewhere. Uh, but they they didn't hit the helicopter. If 100 was shot at a helicopter, a, a one was all it took, though. Hey, Matt, can you uh, relate much to this piece here where Nelson and uh, Waddell and them were sort of out there? Well, sir, you know, what I would say about this particular scene, because uh, this was not something that I had witnessed uh, personally, but in talking to some of the uh, veterans of the battle, you know, this particular scene with uh, Twombly and, and Sarnurek and Nelson being displaced from the rest of the unit. Uh, I think everybody had a little different take on that. I'm talking Ranger veterans. Um, you know, some look at this particular scene as a great depiction of, uh, uh, you know, young Rangers uh, perseverance and uh, uh, initiative, uh, trying to link back up with the element. Uh, others saw it as a uh, you know, a sign of uh, gross miscommunication. I don't know, sir, whether that, in fact, ever did did uh, uh, occur, you know, with those two particular guys. I know early on when Lieutenant DiDomaso left uh, on foot up to the crash site that he had left a, an element at the original blocking position, uh, which I suspect that might have been what was being shown here. I, I really don't know. I, I think what you've got here, there's uh, some mention in the book, and I think the what they're trying to get at is there's uh, saw gunners. They Everybody was closing on the crash site. Somebody's last. And being separated and left behind is a relative term. Uh, those two guys, or at least one of them for sure, I believe, was bringing up the rear. How far behind was he from the rest of the group? Here it's depicted as they've been left. There's great distance and they can't visually see anything. I think it's uh, uh, that theme of bringing up the rear and firing and trying to close on the on the crash site that is the essence of it. And uh, if the book is accurate in that regard, I think it, it pretty much gives you a little bit different slant on that. And that's just that uh, they're behind, they're bringing up the rear, trying to protect the rear and, uh, and they're last, all right, but they, they're certainly not deserted and somewhere lost in the city as this might indicate. And I think that was the, the, I agree, the point was that they were just sort of the rear part of that element moving. They weren't really separated by any great distance and wandering around the streets by themselves. But even if they were the way it's depicted is, young rangers doing great things, and that was important. So, I think what I find out every time is I don't know either, you know. I don't know. 
Every time I talk to somebody, you find out more about what actually went on that you don't know about because everybody's intensely focused. So, um, you know, what every guy really did in their individual experience, it would take 160 guys or however many were out on that street, 99 at the, at the first crash site, to recount individually and everybody listened to it to, to get a better understanding of what all their experience was. The one very accurate part there was uh, I do know that Sean Nelson did have a lot of problem with his hearing for a while after that because of some of that, yeah. which a lot of us did, but Sean did have some significant problems there, but he's recovered from that. To his everlasting credit, he was uh, actually not in the last element. He was uh, the first guy there to that crash site in Lieutenant DiTomaso's chuck. So he, exactly. he ran to the sound of the guns. Many of us, they know what they're asking. Let me talk to him. This is Garrison. And this is that heroic part you're talking about of Gary Gordon and Randy Shugart. Yeah, this is General Garrison talking to him, which is, we already commented on, uh, this is a, this is for drama and for other purposes. And quite frankly, it's a, it's a vehicle and a method to show, though, that these guys knew full well what the situation was. There's an active awareness of the desperateness of this situation. And regardless of that, these guys... Uh, I uh, want to get into the fight because they can, and they can make a difference. Yeah, that piece, I just want to say that I looked at that as a tremendous tribute to both Gary Gordon and Randy Shugart but also to the entire task force. I think it was a tribute that Ridley Scott deserves the greatest, greatest credit and accolades for, in my opinion. Just saw Kalowski depiction of that getting uh, hit in that five ton, but I, I would agree with you, Danny. I think that um, Jerry Bruckheimer and, and Ridley uh, both had uh, good intentions in the, the product uh, that we ended up with here uh, most people are pretty proud of. Uh, it's a Hollywood movie, but at the same time, uh, I think it captures the essence of what, what the troops were about that day and what they're about uh, in any mission. And it's it, uh, great tribute to them and being able to uh, portray it in the right light in the right sense. And there was a lot of faith there because uh, there's a lot of footage shot, and you can do a lot of things in editing to make something look totally different. And uh, they did a great job in editing. Uh, Pietro did, too. You know, there's that scripture that I saw before we left the States on the memorial of Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8. And uh, that rings true throughout this entire movie, and particularly uh, when I look at the, the scenes of uh, Gary Gordon and Randy Shugard about Here Am I, Send Me. And uh, that is a theme that I think carries through this entire, uh, not only the movie, but the book, and certainly in real life. This is a uh, very emotional scene coming up. This is the Durant crash site, and uh, pretty phenomenal. This crash site was in a in a less developed portion of the city, shanty town, shacks, tin shacks, and you could not land directly next to the crash site. In fact, they were 
inserted uh, maybe 100 meters or more away, and they, in fact, had to make their way to the crash site. Uh, and this is a pretty accurate representation or replication of uh, generally what was going on at that time. The two actors that portrayed uh, Randy and Gordy, Nick Waldau and Johnny Strong, were absolutely committed to paying a proper tribute to them and asked countless questions of me about the actual guys they were portraying. So hats off to them for uh, not only wanting to do a good job, uh, but pulling it off in my estimation. And we're at that point where basically everybody's doing something and everybody's committed to this fight right now. And um, this is this is the best we can do and the best that can be done at this crash site. This is about a mile from the other one, as I said. And so uh, you got three people that are able to somewhat defend that crash site. Danny. You're looking for the crash site. <laughs> yeah, but at this point, we had already been uh, given the word to try and make it to the second crash site, and that's where we were trying to head to. And we had turned around and fought back through some of the things we fought through once already to try and make it to the second crash site. A lot of people ask, why don't you just have a helicopter guide you in? And it, uh, I've had people ask me, why not chop gunbirds to them? Well, we did. They did have gunship support. But guiding in from the air when it's essentially a moving target almost because you have roadblocks going up that weren't there a second ago. You have, like Danny said earlier, what's a street, what's an alley? Take take a left turn at the next intersection. Well, crap, is it this driveway, is it this alley, or is it the next major road? And uh, it, it's uh, all under very heavy fire. Your vision is uh, is obscured to the point of sometimes being almost blind. So it's not as easy as it might seem, you know, for an armchair quarterback. Gee, why didn't you just guide him in there from the air? Well, that attempt was made repeatedly. Well described, Lee. I agree with you 100%. And the, that part just shown was when the decision was made that I would head back uh, to the compound, to our base with what uh, I had, that decision was based very simply on the fact that we had numerous, numerous casualties. We did have the prisoners. We were obviously running low on ammunition and stuff because you only take so much with you for so long, regardless of how long you think you may be out there. And uh, probably would have been more hindrance than help if I'd arrived at either crash site, in all honesty, with the number of wounded I had. It may have resulted in more people dying in the long run. So that was a decision made to go back. This is this very dramatic scene, uh, literally a fight to the death with uh, every measure of strength that they had. And true teamwork, uh, as is shown here. This was a feeding frenzy. They sensed blood. Uh, they had time to uh, assemble, mass, and then overwhelm the site. Bit of a helpless feeling, but there's nothing you can do. Everybody is doing what they can do where they're at, and uh, the numbers were just too large at this point in time at this second site. 
Most of this is based on Chief Durant's statement after the fact on, on what occurred here. So it's pretty accurate. There's a scene coming up here that uh, will show uh, ultimately the site getting uh, getting overwhelmed, and uh, there's great taste exhibited in in showing that in a proper light as the site is overwhelmed and as uh, the bodies are being taken out because there's real footage that was seen around the world and uh, it was a decision and I agree with it not to intersperse real footage and show the brutality of that. There was no need for that. You get a real sense of what the what the um, effort was here and uh, the valiant effort and the conditions and how brutal it was. There was no need to try to do it uh, with real footage. So uh, my hat's off to uh, that bit of courtesy. Obvious silence here because this this scene right here is is very emotional and uh, shows probably a pretty good representation of what the conditions were at that moment on the ground and it's brutal and I guess that gets to the point of uh, when you commit U.S. forces you need to understand that uh, there's there could be a cost it is combat and you need to be ready to. Uh, to stand by those decisions when you commit U.S. forces to combat because there are bills to be paid. And because of the effort uh, of Randy and Gordy, uh, that's the only reason Mike's really alive. Uh, they they took the brunt of the uh, onslaught and stood up to it. Uh, and the momentum of the force and the feeding took uh, place on those guys, uh, the frenzied crowd. And uh, that dissipated enough that uh, allowed a little bit of a pause here before they realized they still had another live American. And fortunately, uh, someone stepped in because the rage had kind of uh, gone full course. and. Mike Duran is alive today because of the guy's efforts and, uh, and some other circumstances in that situation of uh, people realizing that maybe he had more value alive than dead. This here really begins the saga of 11 days in Mike Durant's life, which uh, is a whole other story unto itself. And um, again, this story in this book is primarily about the, the focus of the ground guys and, uh, and that effort with uh, some of the ancillary stuff as we just saw. But uh, he has a whole other story, and uh, that's what it is, another story about his 11 days in captivity. And it's uh, quite a phenomenal story in its own right. Go 100 meters past it, that's the crash. Negative. 
You don't understand. It's roadblock after roadblock. You have to find us. I think this is a good representation, too, of the frustration of the convoy trying to get to that second crash site. Just no way to get there. Yeah, and this was just Sergeant Struker and the few vehicles he brought back out there trying to get to it because I had just returned to the base with uh, all the other vehicles. Danny, why don't you describe what happened on your way back to the airfield that we talked about this morning? On the way back to the airfield, once the decision was made, and uh, I called back and said that uh, we'd return uh, to the base instead of trying to get to the second crash site, uh, led the... Started back with the vehicles, and uh, I was bringing up the rear in order to make sure everybody got back in front of me. Uh, we did encounter uh, the few vehicles you just saw that had Sergeant Struker, had uh, then Major Craig Nixon, and a few other people who were trying to get to that uh, second crash site and had been hit by roadblock and ambush after ambush on the way out. Uh, I stopped them as we met each other and told them that they would just assist us in getting back to the uh, compound. There was no need for them to try and get to that crash site. Uh, it, they would probably get uh, uh, themselves uh, killed on the way out there. And so they uh, helped us uh, cross-load uh, people and spread them out over those vehicles. I had one vehicle that was being pushed at that time, and we left it out there and destroyed it with a thermite grenade. It was a cargo Humvee. And we headed back to the compound with uh, all the people at that time. And as we did that, we also ran across the uh, force from the 10th Mountain Division that was trying to get out there to provide reinforcements also. And uh, then they followed us back uh, also to the compound. So that then the consolidated effort, as uh, Lee is most adept at talking about, was put together to try and get a force put together to go out later that evening. But at that point, we brought everything back in convoy-wise uh, with us. And uh, right about now is probably when Super 6-2 gets hit after putting Randy and Gordy in. And uh, he goes down at the port, and a gunbird has to go over with him. Danny's got a couple guns protecting him, and we got one gun left uh, with, quite frankly, the C-2 bird at 6-1's location. And that's it. We, we are pretty well committed. And we've... It was apparent to me at this moment that... Any more Blackhawks in the air would get shot down. I, I uh, dismissed any uh, any thought of uh, bringing any more Blackhawks into the airspace overhead. The uh, the re the repay on that investment wasn't there. It would just mean another crash site because it was intensely uh, uh, a very intense uh, shooting gallery at that point, and uh, the the Blackhawks were getting uh, getting the hell knocked out. Yeah, the gunbird that uh, flew over. Uh, me on the way back with the convoy is probably one of the reasons we did all get back there, and that was none other than CW5 Randy Jones, and I know that very well, and uh, to this day uh, have a very close uh, feeling for Randy and the people that uh, provided that cover to make sure we did get back. Saved a lot of lives by doing it that way, in my opinion. The next thing that onsets here, quite frankly, is darkness. And uh, at that point, we're kind of go static. Uh, the second crash site has been overwhelmed. The first crash site is consolidated on. Been multiple attempts to get out uh, to no avail. And it's going that that uh, what's necessary now is time to coordinate a strong enough punch to uh, go back out into the city. And uh, that's what was going on back at the airfield as dark settled. Uh, on the city, and it was totally dark. 
the moon was almost full that night, but it wasn't going to come up for about an hour. It was 94% illumination and not a cloud in the sky. And what, that was not something we were looking forward to because that allowed really the, the lighting up of the city. Going probably, I don't know what time you hit it out, Lee. It must have been about 2,300 that night. But in the intervening time, really, the, it was gunbirds running on the perimeter, keeping anything that moved that night uh, at bay and dealing with it and uh, eliminating it, quite frankly, while uh, the convoy uh, got ready to move out. It, it was about 11 p.m. that we moved out, and uh, I was really anxious to get back out there. That's when uh, Smith was still wounded, and I was talking to Gary and the C2 bird, trying to get out there. And uh, a lot of folks were trying to put together a coalition of Pakistani armor and uh, Malaysian uh, armored personnel carriers and 10th Mountain Division Humvees and uh, what we had left in Task Force Ranger. Uh, no interpreters, uh, a lot of language barriers, so it, it did take several hours to cobble together a coalition and come up with a plan. This scene here is uh, Jamie Smith. And this is also one of the most dramatic uh, scenes in the movie. His, uh, he's got a significant uh, arterial injury there in his leg, and he's going to bleed out. And uh, a medevac is called for, and quite frankly, with four birds effectively shot down at this point, a black hawk could not land in the city. A, uh, a little bird could land in the street, but um, he would have probably been uh, chopped up too. And uh, everybody was off the streets at this point. It was dark, and the decision was made not to send another bird in because it would just, in all likelihood, mean a uh, third crash site in the city as well, and nobody able to move to it. And uh, the decision was to, to deny the request for the medevac, which was uh, very emotional. And that's alluded to here in the dialogue later on between uh, Eversman and uh, Hoot Gibson. You know, different perspectives on it. Why didn't we risk it? Well, then we just have another crash site. Right. Tough decision, but one of those decisions, quite frankly, that uh, you have to make in these conditions, and uh, it's not easy. One of the things I would add about Corporal Smith and what he did, uh, if you noticed, when he got shot, he was shot as he moved out to help a fellow ranger who had been wounded as he was moving across the street. Uh and that was when he was hit at that time, uh, taking care of his ranger buddy and uh, doing those things. And this is uh, a very tough scene, you're right. And uh, I would also point out that uh, Captain Steele previously, in just a moment of, previous to that, uh, was shown talking to uh, another ranger sergeant by the name of Lorenzo Ruiz, who was shot. I would add that uh, Sergeant Ruiz and I, about the night before that or two nights before that, happened to be watching on our little bitty TV that we did have over there that we could get uh, the World Series on between the Philadelphia Phillies and the Toronto Blue Jays, I believe. And Sergeant Ruiz and I sat there and watched the TV that night of that baseball game. And uh, just one of those little side pieces that uh, shows how human all of us can be at many times watching a baseball game one night and then fighting beside each other for our lives the next day. 
Well, sir, I'll go one further. I'll tell you that Kurt Schilling was pitching for the Phillies, and his cousin was a PJ that was over with us. That's Dan Schilling, by in the fact, way. In fact, he was yes. in the backseat of your sat, Humvee. Sat behind me the yeah. whole time, yes, in my Humvee. Actually, a uh, CCT guy for the Air Force, I believe. How long? At least a couple hours. We haven't got that long, Joe. Pakistani general said since we didn't deem to inform him of the raid, but this is when uh, Lee's referring to starting to put everything, trying to get everything put together to get back out there. I think the other thing that uh, went on here in the intervening time prior to uh, 2300 was a resupply. Uh, in this particular situation, the three things that were needed most were bullets, uh, water, and IV bags, medical, uh, in that perimeter. And so a resupply mission was put together. Uh, couldn't land, as, as I mentioned, but a Black Hawk flown by Stanwood uh, went back to the airfield, got uh, a resupply of those items I just mentioned, and a team of Little Birds uh, led him in there. They uh, raked the street, the Little Birds did, to uh, try to clear the street first with the Black Hawk right on their butts, uh, flying as fast as they could, and uh, come to a stop in front of uh, the designated location to kick out these supplies. Uh, great individual effort. Uh, they did that. They came to hover, threw the stuff out uh, as close to the doorway as possible, and uh, that aircraft absolutely got raked by gunfire. The, the good news was it was not shot down. It was not hit with an RPG, and they were able to make it back to the airfield. That was an aircraft that was also effectively out of the fight. It was uh, really the fifth Black Hawk that had been shot down. It fortunately did not crash in the city. There were uh, two operators on the back of that pushing the supplies out. One of them, Alex Zagetti, got shot in the neck. Uh, he survived that wound, only to lose his right hand a couple of years later in a training accident. It was John Macy Yunus who, uh, every time he turned around, he was on another mission out in the city. Right. In Somalia. Everybody pitching in uh, to do whatever they could do. Uh, another, uh, another little uh, vignette uh, back at the airfield. The the rearm and refueler guys, our FARP as we call it, uh, where the gas and the bullets are. Typically on an aviation mission, you always have to worry about fuel. We never ran out of fuel here before we ran out of bullets. Uh, what they had to return to the airfield for the gunbirds was a rearming, and uh, that went on all night. Uh, the guys in the rearming eventually forced the pilots to eat because they'd been flying all night and in fact they told them they wouldn't rearm them until they ate and they handed them plates of food and uh, and made them consume it and they stayed out there the whole night in fact the gunbirds uh, flew 18 straight hours into the next day and you know sir i just add on to that um two things that the book does not capture uh certainly there's limited pages that we're going to write but i don't think it does a, enough justice to all our support Guys, and I'm talking, you know, the cooks and the mechanics. Uh, you know, we said time and time again how every available man was out doing something uh, when the mission changed, and, and they, they truly were. And in that regard, too, you know, the book and the movie don't give any uh, real consideration, I think, to the QRF uh, at all. And, you know, in, in, in fact, the, the 10th Mountain... Uh, guys jumped right into the mix uh, as soon as they were summoned. And uh, unfortunately, there just, I guess, isn't enough time in the movie, uh, not enough pages in the book to talk about everybody's uh, participation in the battle. You're, you're going to take the feet and a flashlight. 
on my well, Tom alluded to that earlier. You know, it, uh, there were several stories that weren't told. Uh, he put it into a ground air perspective. I would say it one slice of the ground perspective was told. And the, you know, the QRF was left out. Much of the uh, uh, the other elements of the ground force were left out, but that's, you know, if you, otherwise you end up with uh, 16 volumes of it. Well, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll take an opportunity to, to, this is the DVD and these are comments. It, it wasn't about 10th Mountain. This is a medical scene we're looking at here. Phenomenal medical effort by doctors at the hospital who operated for 36 hours also on our wounded. Tremendous individual stories. 10th Mountain did what they were supposed to do. And they responded they participated. They went out. They lost two soldiers. Uh, they were Americans who died, as well as a, a couple Malaysians who were also killed when two of their APCs were destroyed. So uh, there were there were a lot of people doing a lot of things that, that night, and uh, this uh, shows some of it. Some of the background on the book as it relates to to Jamie Smith, uh, one of the major reasons that uh, reasons Mark Bowden wrote the book was because of uh, Jamie Smith. Ran into his father. His father is a Vietnam veteran, uh, Army Ranger qualified guy who lost a leg in Vietnam fighting for his country. Uh, his son was uh, depicted just there uh, a minute ago and was uh, killed, and that was the one that we couldn't get the medevac in for, and he, he bled out. Uh, they bonded about that story. Uh, Mark Bowden has a son about his age, and uh, Mr. Smith uh, couldn't get all the information he wanted, and as things turned out uh, through contacts, that was what kicked this whole saga and story off in the recording in the book that subsequently led to the making of this movie. So it was important to, uh, uh, to a lot of people that that scene stay in there. Gold Coast blend. Sit down. I'm going to take a look at that foot. I know, it's not a problem. Come on, come on. Where the hell did they find There's another Delta team leader and a ranger, I think, showing uh, cooperative effort and working together. And then I'll just highlight team leaders in Delta. There were a number of them there. Their names, most of their names are changed. Uh, one of them, uh, Lee, I'll mention, and I'm sure you want to comment on, was Matt Ryerson. Well, Matt... Uh Matt, like Mace, uh, every time he turned around, he was out there doing something, a, a true hero, an, an unsung hero, who uh, went through the the initial takedown, did his job, uh, jumped on board uh, Danny's convoy to escort the prisoners back, went back in with me, um, put his team in a strategic location to guard the uh, cliffs down Hilo, and then came back out without a scratch, only to die two days later in the uh, one-round mortar attack. He's a guy that is uh, universally respected in our community, uh, left two small boys behind, and we all miss him. Yeah. Another uh, a personal example of, uh, of an individual soldier by name that uh, just did his job phenomenally out there. This shows a lot of uh, heavy weapons, and uh, as we mentioned earlier, quite frankly, these these caliber weapons were not seen um, by me at all out there. I don't know if anybody else saw anything no, like this, but I sure didn't. 
This is one of my favorite scenes. It's so cool. Unfortunately, nothing like it happened, but it's really a great scene. But it could have. The best part of this whole thing to me, though, is, and you said it a a moment ago, Tom, about uh, a Delta guy and a Ranger guy. Here again, you see Delta guys and Ranger guys working together because they did it day in and day out. There was very little of that earlier mention as lee pointed out friction or whatever between them they really really trusted each other to the nth degree without a doubt and relied on each other to do what was right day in and day out uh, without question this is a great scene in depicting that in my opinion what really happened here this is kind of a takeoff on an actual event we did have a handful of operators go to mike grant's crash site with a company from the 10th Mountain Division. It was actually Craig Nixon's plan, go in and strong point a central location. We had four tanks. We would break off two to each crash site. Well, the tanks refused to go any further. Um, ironically enough, it was Pakistani armor and getting their 24 soldiers killed is what started the whole thing in the first place. But they refused to move out of the strong point. So we went out of there with the Malaysian APCs and a, uh, a lot of foot troops to provide security for the APCs, mutual support. So one company went south to Durant's crash site, one went north to Cliff Walcutt's. Um, we had a, a handful of operators that said go south. They uh, scoured the site, uh, turned it upside down, didn't find a thing. At that point, we didn't know if uh, everyone was dead and carried off, if they were all live, taken prisoner. Had no idea what their status was. The uh, northern crash site, Cliff's, that's where all the action was. That's where the Sea Bird went in and uh, Lieutenant DiTomaso's uh, chalk got in. And uh, that's where we had uh, about um, 99 uh, troops uh, securing the crash site with uh, Cliff's body uh, unable to extricate it. And that's what took so long to, to bring it out. I can't die here, man. You're not going to die, all right? You're not going to die. I'm sorry. There was no effort made to cast actors to look like the characters they're portraying uh, for those who portrayed uh, real-life characters. Um, and, and most of the characters here in the movie are actually fictitious characters, many of them using real names, because you, you had to compile what a lot of people did. Otherwise, you'd have a cast of 450, 500 people, and nobody could keep track of anything. I was uh, very favorably impressed by the level of commitment, the actors that I worked with the most, Bill Fickner and Eric Bana and Nick Waldon, Johnny Strong, Kim Coates, uh, they wanted to get it right and they worked hard at it and uh, they had a tremendous work ethic and uh, I singled out some of them, but uh, that was my experience across the board. They, I, you know, no prima donnas, no pretty boys. These guys got down, got dirty and uh, really wanted to do it right. And I guess one thing I would say about that is mm-hmm. I really give a lot of credit to Tom Sizemore because when he was over doing the filming in Morocco, he and I talked on two two occasions. And that to me meant a lot that he was interested enough to talk to me from Morocco when they were doing the filming. And uh, Tom and Lee and I also talked a few times while they were over there uh, when I was still in uniform and uh, at First Army in Atlanta, Georgia, but uh, I thought it was a great credit to Tom Sizemore that he was interested enough to ask certain questions about certain pieces and how things should be depicted. Tom and uh, Josh Hartnett and Ewan McGregor, these big-name actors, uh, 
they, they're professionals. You know, Jason Isaacs, they'd, uh, they want to get it right. And, uh, you know, Tom and I aren't, uh, Tom Matthews and I aren't associated with Hollywood at all. They didn't know us from Adam, but uh, they listened to us and uh, were really committed to doing it right. Well, I think that, that the fruits of your labors came out, uh, even though it's not a biography. Uh, you know, a lot of the actors uh, that I've seen, uh, you know, certainly act in very believable, authentic manner, even as a compilation of several people. Uh, and, you know, there aren't any there aren't any superstars and there aren't any invincible people. I think they're, uh, uh, for the most part, pretty believable, acting as young young men did in combat for the first time. I would echo all that. I'll just add that um, the people in the cast uh, and behind the scenes, they work incredibly hard. It's 12 hours a day, six days a week. And uh, there's a lot of skill and a lot of craftsmanship out there uh, behind the camera, too. And uh, there were f some phenomenal uh, artists and technicians and, and people that, that are just experts at their trade. I was very impressed by the professionalism of all these people in their own areas because uh, it was quite a team out there. Yeah, Tom and I both enjoyed working with the stunts. Uh, those guys were just, they were great guys. And a lot of them were actually serving as extras, vice pure stuntmen, but uh, you know, a lot of them didn't speak English either. But boy, what a, what a great experience to work with them. Sergeant, you can't control who gets here. This is a gradual thing, you know. Uh, we didn't mention it, but uh, there was individual training that was done ahead of time at Fort Benning, Fort Bragg, and Fort Campbell at various levels and uh, intensities. But the bottom line was they got a exposure gradually and an insight to locations of the real units. They took away something from that. The actors did. They got a sense and an initial flavor. They then went over there, and, and obviously they got in character. They get their hair cut. They got all that, and they're wearing the right gear. And they began to look, talk, and act like soldiers. And they really started to gather an insight of what it is they were trying to do. And I, I really believe that um, that they also uh, changed themselves and were committed to uh, getting this right for all, all the correct reasons in the memory of the soldiers, too. And there's any number of examples of that uh, that uh, materialized gradually. But it is a gradual thing. And uh, in the end here, as you see them moving, you see them working as teams, you certainly get the feeling that uh, that they understood how they're at least supposed to act, and they really wanted to get it right for the sake of the real people. This scene coming up with the gun run, that's, that's only shown a couple times in the movie, but uh, Danny had already mentioned uh, the key role that these guys played, and I would simply elaborate on that to say that those of us who participate in this battle on the ground uh, probably wouldn't be having this conversation were it not for the gunbirds uh, keeping us alive. They did a phenomenal job. Why none of them got shot down uh, will always be a mystery. They were out there fully exposed time and time again, the, the full 17 or 18 hours of the battle. So if any of them are listening, thanks, guys. By my count, they probably made, uh, each crew made probably 70 runs individually that day and night somewhere in the perimeter on the uh, objective area. Uh, as they continually uh, provided fire support and then rearmed and came back again. And every time they made a run, and I'm amazed too, that they were not shot down. Uh, there just is no rhyme or reason to it sometime. When it's your time, it's your time. And that night, fortunately, it was not the Gunbirds guys' time. And uh, they did some great fire support. 
and just flew all night long and did their job. I think here we generally mark our, our positions with strobes and not our targets. Right. <laughs> yeah, if we did that, we wouldn't get to run across the street a couple times. But this is, yeah. this is a technical challenge. This is trying to show and represent in some fashion the fire support and the large number of uh, and the large volume of shooting that was done and what they really did uh, that night. Uh, but you're right, uh, Matt, the, the strobes were used to mark the friendly positions. They were thrown on the roof of the buildings where our guys were, and then we could absolutely tell which buildings the friendlies were in, our guys, and by definition, everything else, if it was moving or encroaching on that perimeter, was fair game. Lee, you mentioned about the aviators. I'll just go ahead and state it and get it off of my off of my little bitty shoulders here. As I've talked many times about this in little briefings to people about Somalia, the aviators uh, that uh, were over there and that Tom Matthews uh, commanded in his battalion are without a doubt the finest aviators that have ever been behind a stick in any airplane, any aircraft anywhere in the world. And I feel the same way about the Delta operators. They're the finest operators. And uh, people don't realize how good we, the people are we have out there until they maybe get a feel of it and a sense of it from this right here in terms of aviators, operators, and uh, young rangers doing what young rangers do. And uh, those young rangers may have been 18, 28, 38, or even 42 like some of us may have been at the time. But... Uh, it was truly a task force of 450 of the most special people I've ever seen together. This shows the convoy finally coming into the position about 2 in the morning. Again, this is pretty well dramatized uh, that they're just getting there in the nick of time, but we, we were a pretty uh, secure perimeter at that point. Although there was there was firing going on and uh, Lee uh, Lee walked in, so he certainly can talk to that more directly. Yeah, a lot of people refer to this as a rescue effort. I I don't. It was a relief column. We were able to get the wounded out in the vehicles. Those guys didn't need rescuing. They had a secure perimeter. There was a race to get to uh, Cliff Silo. We won the race. We secured it. We'd already seen what the Somalis did to uh, dead American bodies. They'd shot down a Black Hawk a couple weeks earlier desecrated the bodies. We weren't going to let that happen to any of ours if we could at all help it. Tom had mentioned earlier the actual crash site was in a narrow alley, so what we had to do was secure around that alley at key intersections. It was nowhere near as congested as this, uh, nowhere near as chaotic as this. Yeah, you talk about being out there at night and secured, and I'm glad you said that. And there's been places it's been written and people have said that the task force was trapped and used that word, which I object to, vehemently object to. We were not trapped. We were there because we were not going to leave that location until we could bring everybody out of there, including Cliff Walcott. So trapped is a real bad word to use. Uh, we were secure, could have stayed there, and you are right using the word. The relief then arrived. It wasn't a rescue, and we were able to uh, then get Cliff out of there, of course, and then take everybody back the way we should take them back. Uh, trapped is a word I object to, and I will just have to be very clear about that. 
the business about uh, Cliff being stuck there, uh, it was my call as the ranking man at that site, what we did, uh, and I determined that we were not going to leave him behind. So that meant we had to get him out at Hilo. We were not taking casualties. It wasn't a question of uh, sacrificing live people for one dead guy. Uh, had that been going on, I would have had to make a different decision. But uh, tribute to General Garrison and the guys in the C-2 bird, that was my decision to make. And uh, I didn't want to get caught there after daylight. Our fear was that uh, the, the volume of fire and the intensity would increase after daylight. In fact, it didn't really make much difference as it turned out. We were there after daylight, but uh, we weren't leaving without Cliff. So we finally got him out. We literally pulled the black heart apart um, by hooking it up to a Humvee in that narrow alleyway. Pulled it off him, finally got him out, and uh, then we left. And I will say that the true hero in getting that relief column out there and getting everybody out of there was Lee Van Arsdale. Uh, as depicted in the movie, it shows that uh, I went back out there with a relief column, and I did not go back out that night. I had some people that were bigger than me that told me to sit down and shut up, so I didn't go anywhere, and they had all the, all the leadership they needed with people like you, Lee, so I want to make sure that it's clearly known you were the one that was responsible for getting that column out there and back that night. Well, the, I appreciate that, but in fact, there were a, a lot of good soldiers, all of whom did their job, and last time I saw you there in the jock, you were uh, bleeding out pretty well, too, so I, this part about uh, the little little conference we had where, you know, rangers will provide rear security and all that. The, the time-honored uh, technique with armor in urban environment is to have mutually supporting foot infantry and armor. Uh, a lot of meaning goes that term, mutually support. These uh, APCs were headed back about 800 meters to a strong point where a reserve element had stayed behind with the tanks, and the plan was to move the wounded via the vehicles and the healthy by foot back to the strong point. That's exactly what happened. That, uh, in all its non-dramatic form, is the so-called Mogadishu Mile. There was none of this uh, abandoning our soldiers to the uh, vicissitudes of urban combat, the technicals, everything else. We had air support the whole time. Some of the soldiers who made it didn't know that was the plan, so there's been a variety of comments about, you know, this is just great, run in and run out while everyone leaves me behind. No one was left behind. When, when we got to the strong point, we took a head count. Uh, I distinctly remember having the three Ranger platoon leaders there giving me a thumbs up. Got it from the assault force commander, got it from the 10th Mountain Division company commander. And then sure enough, some of the vehicles started going while about six or eight of us were still on foot. So we started jogging interspersed with the vehicles with armor behind us the whole time. We were never left behind. Tom Matthews saw it overhead. He called for helos to come and get us. When they were inbound, the vehicles stopped. Uh, we got on board and drove out. So nothing very dramatic, unfortunately. So you really didn't have to run all the way back to the stadium. Though. I'd still be running, Danny. Okay. <laughs> You've seen me run before. <laughs> great clarity. I appreciate that one myself. Here's a great example, I think, of what y'all referred to earlier in terms of women yeah. Young teens. Everyone in Somalia from age, I don't know, 8, 10, or 12 is a combatant. It's what they yes. do. It's their national pastime. They don't have cable TV, you know, so they go out and get in firefights. It's a cultural difference, the value they place in life, and then who uh, then goes out in that city and, and uh, engages in this kind of stuff is totally different uh, than American culture. And, and um, 
And we've had various people explain that to us, and it is a cultural difference. But from, from an American's eyes, it is very unnatural and not normal. And the first time you ever see a woman or a child pointing a weapon at you, you will hesitate as because Americans are not used to shooting women and children. But the first time that woman or child who is a combatant inflicts damage and wounds one of your buddies or almost wounds or kills them, uh, that's the last time you'll hesitate. That's just another definition of a combatant, and in that culture and environment, it was different. This is a great scene here, and it's it's 100% accurate. It's like the uh, Green Line in Beirut. You instantly traversed one reality to another, and and so you have kids playing, a businessman talking on the phone, carrying his briefcase. Now, as I said before, we didn't run through that. We were on the back of open vehicles and drove through it, but you pass from a complete war zone in every sense of the word to a normal, so far as it gets normal in Mogadishu, yeah. where people aren't trying to kill you um, because you're there. And uh, as this shows, they're cheering us on. Most of the population of Mogadishu appreciated our presence over there. So it was uh, completely surreal to go from, you cross one imaginary line and you're in a different reality. And then you get to the stadium where you have the guys with the little white cloth over their arm uh, pushing food on you. Absolutely unbelievable. I'm glad you pointed out because I had that question asked uh, t- by uh, Matt Lauer of NBC, and that was my comment exactly was it wasn't that they were all bad people. There was a group that was, we had to fight those, but there yeah. were as many or many more that were happy we were there and would just as easily applaud us and pat you on the back for what you were doing to try and make it a better place for them. And one comment I'll say right now, and if I don't say anything else, I want to say this, and this is as good a point as any. I was asked a question by some reporters the day I got back from Mogadishu in October 93, and they said, did the soldiers meet your expectations? And I clearly looked at them and said, no, the soldiers didn't meet my expectations. And I think they really thought there was something negative to that. But my follow-on to that was the reason the soldiers didn't meet my expectations was everything I saw in the streets of Mogadishu on the 3rd and 4th of October in 1993. Whether it was medics or infantrymen or Delta operators or aviators, they exceeded any expectations I could have ever had in my wildest dreams. No matter how long I dreamed, I could have never expected what I saw. And I have to make that comment because that, to me, summarizes how I feel about what took place here. Well said. And that goes back to what we said at the start of this. This was a successful mission. Exactly. That, that fact is lost on a lot of people because what I consider very shoddy reporting without doing any homework first. Um, but the fact is we did what we set out to do that day. Every time. Exactly. This scene depicted in the stadium was a bit surreal. Um, it was the aftermath of the battle. It was safe and secure inside the walls. And then you got to see what the damage was. And there were body bags, people being worked on with IVs, units assembled, reloading and reorganizing. Um, a very surreal scene. And that scene where the Pakistanis come walking up, they did not have much. Uh, and they, in fact, were walking around with a t- white towel over their arm and a tray trying to serve water because that's all they could do, quite frankly. But it was a... a Simple yet very uh, significant in uh, gesture that had a big impact uh, visually. And this is a good scene also. Shows, I think, the 
the feeling that Captain Steele did have for every one of his soldiers, and he didn't really realize, I don't think, the the vastness of all of it that had gone on because he was in a small piece of it out there in the streets in a building overnight, and he this was really probably the first time he really saw what his soldiers had endured and fought through all night, and this is, a I think, a tribute to him as well. But you're yes, we will. We've got to regroup. Don't go out without me. Don't go back out there without me. I could still do my job. A comment was made that uh, the producer and the director commented more about the, uh, rather than the movie, the, the real mission and, uh, and the units and stuff. And I said, well, you know, maybe we ought to comment a little bit about the making of the movie, which also is part of the purpose here. And I'll just uh, give you my summary on that. And when I first got involved with this and, and Lee did uh, everything that wasn't right, we would point that out. And uh, the comment was, uh, look, we're not making a documentary for the History Channel here. We're making a movie for Hollywood. So if a documentary is on one end of the spectrum, that's supposed to be reality and Hollywood is on the other end. And it's, Hollywood is supposed to be about producing a movie for entertainment. And as we were told once or twice to suspend reality because people want to go to the movie and pay their money and, and be entertained. Um, this movie here moved and, and everybody got it. And it moved and it was a constant process of compromise, but it moved from a Hollywood entertainment product well to the other end of the spectrum towards reality. And what ended up on the screen, I think, is a, a frank, brutal, and stark documentation of an urban combat fight uh, shown in a, in a really extraordinary way. And instead of being entertained, I think you get educated. And it isn't a suspension of reality. It kind of, reality kind of hits you right in the face. And that's kind of my summary comment about the, the product that uh, ends up on the screen. Good comments. Um, the aftermath of this took people by surprise. You know, most didn't even know we were over there. Uh, they could maybe point to Somalia on a map and knew that there were starving people there, but that's about the extent of it. When you commit forces to combat, you have to be prepared for some of the consequences to include losing soldiers' lives. And I don't think that uh, that was universally understood either by the uh, policymakers or by the press or by the American public. I know I've changed. Well, I guess of the th those sitting here, I was the only one that really didn't know much about the movie before it was released in, on 18 January because uh, y'all had contact with the making of the movie, the three of you. And I didn't, and I can tell you that I sat there on that Sunday after it, on the 20th of January and saw it for the first time, just like anybody else in the public sector did. And uh, I have the greatest admiration and accolades to pass on to Jerry Berkheimer and Ridley Scott for what they have done, because they have paid, in my opinion, tremendous tribute to what went on in those... Uh, streets of Mogadishu to the soldiers that were there, whether they were soldiers from the 450 and the task force ranger, or whether they were from 10th Mountain Division or whatever. And that's the way I look at it as a tremendous tribute. And uh, they have my greatest admiration because like Tom just said, it couldn't be a documentary, but they sure did an awfully good job of making it seem real to the people that need to know what goes on in that kind of situation. So I echo what y'all have said as a person who saw it for the first time after it was released. Well, they said they were committed to making it 
right and getting it right, but it, it was a process, there's no doubt about it. And there's an extra ingredient here right, as well. You know, you make a movie, and even if it's uh, about history, this, first of all, was a current historical event in many ways. It wasn't the Second World War. It wasn't Vietnam that many people may not remember this at this day and age. This was in uh, the last 10 years. Uh, this was something that some people remembered. It was more of a current event. The extra ingredient, quite frankly, was having people there that actually were in the real event at that point and could say, no, rather than doing A, B, or C, this is the way it was. It was like this. That extra ingredient of reality, I think, is what moved it towards a, a, a pretty good product for a documentation uh, of what went on that day. And I got to hand it to Jerry Bruckheimer and to Ridley Scott. They did a great job in staying true to the essence of this, which was the memory of the soldiers and showing a, a pretty good product of the professionalism and the valor that was uh, demonstrated on that day. And quite frankly, given all the dynamics of making a movie, uh, it's, it's hard to imagine they could have done it much better, quite frankly. Uh, it certainly could have been a lot worse than, uh, than anything that's up there. The potential was there. But they, they understood and had the insight, and they were committed. Uh, they understood the essence of uh, what went on that day, and they did a great job. And the, uh, the editor did, too. Superb job. Pietro did a phenomenal job. I will say the technical advisor's names sure do appear pretty far down the list, though. <laughs> I was hoping they wouldn't be there at all. <laughs> nope. And that's the reason I have to say for you guys that uh, y'all called me. It made me feel like it was important to, to y'all because you wanted to go that extra step to see about little bits and pieces that I may have seen that you didn't. And uh, Tom Sizemore did and Matt Eversman being there and people like that. It, it makes it everything that it was. So thanks to y'all. I got one other thing I'd like to say, and that's uh, for any of the family members or the, uh, the sons and daughters of any of the soldiers that were killed over there. Um, your relatives, your husbands, your fathers, your brothers, your uncles, uh, they were heroes. They did a great job, and I hope this movie serves to honor their memory. I guess if I could just say one one quick comment before we we go with uh, this, you know, the reality of being uh, a participant in a battle, and uh, for myself having my name used as one of the main characters, uh, as you said, sir, you know, it's an honor to be a, you know, to be literally here with with uh, you know the command group of of this task force as it was an honor to be associated with men like Gary Gordon and Randy Shugart and Casey Joyce and Earl Fillmore and all the like. Uh, uh, I wish I could take credit for, you know, a, a tenth of the things that Josh Hartnett shows, but, uh, you know, in reality, I think that it's a, a great representation of, uh, you know, America's sons in a tough situation uh, that would never say quit. And uh, that is about the noblest quality I think we could ever ask of anybody. And uh, this movie, without a doubt, shows it. Uh, and there's no way, uh, regardless of what you think about the military, foreign policy, urban combat, there's no way anyone can see this movie and not walk away feeling immense pride in what our, our soldiers 
did in 1993 and what they're going to continue to do, uh, you know, until we all hang up our spurs. And, and Jerry and Ridley did a, did a, a, a wonderful job in depicting that. And there ends the sermon. It's about as well said as you can, I think. Thank you. I'm 
to say you're just thinking about getting married <laughs> well i'm a lot better looking than josh harton it is any day yeah goes without saying you get more hair you do. <laughs>